Welcome everyone. I dreamed the impossible. I dreamed SNGP50. I'm your host, David Rad, former writer of Games Industry Biz, Industry Gamers, and Gamer Feed. With me, a man chooses a Tuesday, edits, contributes, and partners in potting. Uh, with me, as always, is Tuesday. Oh, would you kindly talk about Bioshock today? I yay! <laughs> Hello. <laughs> yes, uh, today's topic will indeed be about the seminal game Bioshock, which came out fifteen years ago. Amazingly enough, uh, it came out fifteen years ago. I think I played it seven years ago. So, <laughs> right on time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I played it more, uh, well, no, I, it wasn't quite 15 years ago, but it's, it's been a while, but it left a lasting impression. And we're going to talk about the various and sundry ways that uh, basically we feel like the game is great and like has also influenced the industry g- going forward. But before we get all that, uh, we'll just, again, like, you know, in our... Shout out on our Patreon, patreon.com slash SNGP. Thank you to Sinkerboy42. And if you want to support the podcast financially, like you can go there. Or And we certainly appreciate anybody's listenership as well. Thank you much. Now we'll shift over to housekeeping for the week. And I will note that... Our discussion of the financials of Activision Blizzard last time has made me think Bobby Connick has always been thoroughly focused on the bottom line for his company, as evidenced by him monetizing Guitar Hero and Tony Hawk's Pro Skater until both franchises became thoroughly unprofitable. The ultimate solution he came to was on re- return of investment. Opportunity cost, 80-20, if you're familiar with that concept. The er- areas of uh, that makes the company the most money. He saw the opportunities in Call of Duty, and so has focused Activision on that exclusively now. Now, a lot of AAA f- publishers are focused on a small number of games, but none is ex- exclusively focused on one series, the way that Activision is. The problem I see it, and we've seen this definitely cropping up the past year, what happens when even the Call of Duty well starts to run dry? Like, what would be next for the company? I guess the answer to that is, A, they're not thinking about it, B, they're hoping that it's not going to be their problem when they get their golden parachutes and the the company is sold to Microsoft in a year. Mm Yes, I yeah, it's uh, it's unfortunate because Activision Blizzard used to like have quite a bit of of profitable franchises. Um, they yeah, with with Call of Duty, like I feel like they are like yes, it is still one of the most profitable franchises in gaming. But I know that people are starting to like see different lights of them. Like there there was a dip in their profits. Uh, there's the fact that you know they're a terrible company. Um, but like, yeah, uh, with the cancellation of, uh, Pro Skater 3 and 4, like, putting all of their eggs in one basket, especially a basket that is, uh, as annualized as Call of Duty is, and people could get burnt out on, developers could get burnt out on, like, you can replace talent, but at the end of the day, eventually it's not gonna be, it's, it's not gonna be the money-making machine it is. 
I think we're already starting to see signs of wear and tear. This isn't to say like it isn't still a juggernaut since it completely is, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's it's one of those things that like if the company was to remain independent, I feel like they would actually have to deal with that and come up with a creative solution. I am not confident that they would be able to, but like like I said, it might become a moot point if they become part of the greater Xbox group. Now, a recent investor call by Square Enix suggested that they are further divesting themselves from their European and U.S. development assets in order to focus on Japan, at least according to analyst David Gibson. This was shown in them recently ending their relationship with Bulkhead Interactive, the developer of the multiplayer first-person shooter Battalion 1944. You might have read about that this past week. This all is called improving capital efficiency, and this leaner company becomes a more attractive target to somebody like Sony, Tencent, or Nexon. It may it may not happen, but don't be surprised if it does. Is all I'm saying. I read about that additional thing, and despite the fact that they said like, oh, we still might invest in some other developers outside of Japan after they completely divested themselves of old IDOS, basically, it kind of seems like they're doing the opposite. Again, like, to just make themselves an acquisition target. Now, recently, Cult of the Lamb came out, and I haven't played it, but I do just want to note from a streaming perspective, it is unique in that it has integration with Twitch, in that with it the different viewers on Twitch can uh, apply to basically become members of the of the players the streamers cult in the game and they can customize an avatar with their name and it becomes a vi- a villager that is in the uh, the lamb's town on top of that there is also the ability to do things like spend channel points to help out the streamer on the totem, and the totem will generate different presents for the streamer. It's just a really interesting integration of Twitch into gaming, and it shows like how, in another way, that like Twitch is actually uh, is kind of changing the way people look at and interact with games. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, I. I also like that it is uh, in the game Cult of the Lamb because you know that 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 means that uh, your uh, your Twitch uh, chat is now your cult. That's pretty fun. Um, yeah. I've heard I've heard good and interesting things about it. Um, I have read some spoilers because I'm a child. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it looks super super interesting, super crazy and insane. Um, I have not played it yet. Very excited to uh, one day uh, play it. I have seen also that it's done uh, very good on numbers, um, and uh, they are planning updates as well. So uh, go! I think that's Massive Monster that made it. Uh, you, you guys are crushing yeah. it. Yeah, totally. And it's a once again another huge hit for Devolver. They again really managed to pick up, and I'm sure like their support like also helps expand out the the games that they uh, choose to support in various ways so now 
Recently, Tuesday, you mentioned how you think Pokemon Scarlet and Violet quote, look like one of the good ones when it comes to the Pokemon franchise. That is true. I wanted to ask you, what what is it that intrigues you about the game? I, I know that they have said that there are three storylines, essentially, to uh, play. Uh, they have announced that, obviously, there's the uh, gym storyline. Makes sense. Uh, they have said that it is fully open world, um, which reminds me a lot of Breath of the Wild. I sunk a ton of Breath of the, hours into Breath of the Wild uh, until I played both Gungeon and um, Isaac. Uh, that was actually my most played game there. Um, it is weird, though. They've said that um, the gym leaders you can conquer in any order, but they're not like level scaled, so that's I'm not 100% sure about that. Uh, they haven't announced the other two uh, storylines that you can follow yet, um, but I, I like the idea of just being able to explore the world and see what's going on there. Um, I know that they had like kind of open world sections in Sword and Shield, which yeah, I've heard bad things about, um, but I like the gameplay that I've seen. Uh, I like it. It looks it's Pokemon, so it's not going to be drastically different from <laughs> you know all of the other entries but it looks like a decent step forward it looks like they learned a little bit maybe they learned a little bit i don't know how long pokemon games take to develop but it looks like they they did learn some things while developing or seeing the development of uh legends arceus and i'm i'm interested in it it, it does seem new enough i i kind of like to take breaks from pokemon in that the game uh, I played, let's see, a gold, silver, ruby, sapphire, and I did a little bit of diamond pearl, but I never finished it, and then I was off Pokemon until XY, then I was off Pokemon, and now I, I feel like this is a nice kind of jumping back in point. Uh, X and Y, though, are still very good. Um, they, they have the best mechanic of Mega Evolution, which they're not bringing back, but... <laughs> Yeah, they eventually integrated so many things that they realized they couldn't bring everything forward into every game. I feel like XY really reached the pinnacle of that, that like they'd just been adding things and adding things and adding things. They realized for the next century that like uh, we're just not going to bring everything forward anymore mm -hmm. uh, to deal with it. I, I think Sword and Shield did something that, like, because I was thinking about this, is that like with Pokemon, they, have, they had a problem that like they kept adding on to and kept pushing out into the future of at some point the massive amount of like data that all of these monsters take up is going to exceed our physical capability to put them in a game without it running like trash um i think that had around generation three or four or even five if they had said okay this is when we're going to start doing this new thing called Master Regions, where only certain Pokemon come up, certain variants, uh, that kind of thing. If there hadn't been as many, this wouldn't have been the significant problem that it was. Like, looking at games like SMT, uh, yeah, they have the same core demons probably around... I'd say they use probably... Every game has probably around 70... Uh, demons that are there for sure. Uh, usually every SMT game has about 100 demons, so there's about that 30 demon leeway. Uh, that there are some demons that show up in old games that haven't shown up in years. There are designs all the way back from, uh, 
when I believe it was Umeko uh, or Kazuma Kameko, some one of those names uh, was the designer that they haven't used since he left. There are new designs that were introduced in Apocalypse that they've sort of frequently used. There are new designs that have come from SMT5 that they are using now in Soul Hackers 2. Like, they have that, like, kind of leeway of, okay, you come here because you know these demons, these endgame or special demons are going to be unique throughout each game. That's something that Pokemon never really fully adapted to and understood how to uh, challenge. So when they announced that the entire, uh, not the entire Pokedex was coming to Sword and Shield, there was a problem. Yeah, yeah, there was definitely a huge issue. I We definitely would have talked about that if we were doing SNGP at the time, mm-hmm. since I know it was definitely a, like, possibly one of the most controversial things that ever happened among the Pokemon community. But yeah, like, yeah, to your point, uh, and firstly, it, like, you also don't can't transfer over the like the demons you've had in different SMT games between them, they're all independents. Yeah. So there was no presumption of that, like the way there was in Pokemon. But yeah, like there has always been that pressure, like for okay, new Pokemon game. That means a new 150 plus Pokemon. Yep. Of varying degrees of quality. Yep. Anybody who wants to act that like all 150 Pokemon of every generation are good, like no. Yeah. Uh, there, there are good ones and there are bad ones. Uh, that's that's all I'll say. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, that's interesting about the multiple storylines. We'll have to see like how that actually pans out. And as far as the open world, that kind of makes it sound like kind of an MMO open world in that you can go to different you can go to different areas, but it's like it's kind of level locked. Mm-hmm. Like you'll kind of have a have a bad time if you don't have Pokemon of the right level. Uh, I don't know. That's just that's just me theorizing as opposed to uh, actually being like Breath of the Wild. Um, but uh, but I, I guess we'll see. As I brought up before, like if they're uh, I don't think the characters will have voices, and I still think that is extremely chintzy of them to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, but, I usually don't listen to game audio, so not a big deal for me. <laughs> and uh, get some get some headphones too. So. I do have headphones. Uh, I'm using them to listen to other things. <laughs> God. Uh, the only game I will always listen to the audio to, and I bet you can guess it, uh, is Metal Gear Rising Revengeance. <laughs> well. It would still be nice if, like, there was the option of that in there as opposed to... I mean, like, plenty of games on the 3DS also had voices. Fire Emblem Awakening had voices. Yeah. Uh, Like, as as we brought up, like, SMT4 had had some voices. Like, I don't think it was completely voiced, but a lot of important dialogue was voiced Mm -hmm. in that game. Uh, So... The idea that that po- that those games have it in modern Pokemon games on the Switch don't have it, it's just like, yeah, yeah, it's very, uh, very old of them, very, very classic. I they're getting away with basically the legacy idea that like, oh, Pokemon games have never had voices, just like you know, yeah, like the original game came out on Game Boy, yeah. and they, like it's always been a portable game series, so like. Uh, and systems that you wouldn't necessarily expect voices, so I feel like they've gotten away that with that for a long time. But, anyways, putting that aside, my grumbling about Pokemon characters not actually speaking. 
Tuesday, what has been lighting up your system this week? Yes, uh, I have a couple roguelikes that I've played because that's all I do. Um, <laughs> that's not entirely <laughs> true. Um, the first one that I have played, probably won't talk about as much, uh, just because there's not as much to talk about, uh, is an old game that I've played a little bit in the past and picked up just for, for fun, uh, Bad North. Uh, it is a... As they have described it, as the developers have described it, a minimalistic, real-time uh, strategy roguelike. Uh, the story is that you are a group of Vikings uh, traveling through islands trying to survive other Vikings to get to the end of the islands. There's the story. Uh, nothing like Binding of Isaac or Enter the Gungeon where there's actually content there. It's just that. Um... It does follow the same kind of uh, map-like progression that you'll see in um, both Slay the Spire and Inscription. Uh, that kind of, you you know the build where each room is, you know, a battle. Uh, battles take place from a uh, isometric-ish perspective. Um, and what you do is you have a maximum team of four uh, Viking squads. They can vary from um, swordsmen, pikesmen, and archers, uh, and basically what you got to do is just survive wave after wave of Viking. Uh, it's not incredibly difficult. I think the controls, uh, I believe it is on actually mobile, so that should tell you it's on mobile and not inaccessible on mobile, so that should tell you the kind of scale of controls that it has uh, in that battles uh what you got to do is at least on the switch version which is where i played it you press the shoulder buttons to bring up the menu of which viking you want to move and then you move them to the little space and that's it <laughs> there is a little bit of gameplay variety in that the more you level up your each of the units they do unlock a skill that can be used a battle skill the archers have a volley uh that allows them to uh, just send wave after wave of arrows at their enemies. Uh, usually that's best used at higher grounds, just because then you can like kind of get the drop on people. Uh, knights have a uh, more dedicated slash, uh, so they can do just a lot more damage to bigger targets. Uh, and pikesmen have a running uh, attack, that a charge, essentially, that will uh, run down enemies in their way. So, but that is also just controlled by um, opening up the menu, uh, arrowing over to that command and pressing A, and then you select where you want to use it. So super simple to control, super easy to learn. It's not a terribly difficult game. Uh, you pick up enemy commanders on other uh, little islands as well, and that's fine. Uh, you're generally, once you get uh, at least four, at least three units, your fourth one is going to be a repeat of one of the other ones you have. It's going to be either an archer, a pikesman, or a knight, so you're not going to have a fully diverse squad. Um, so what you really want to do is find the four units that you like that either start off with a better a ranked up attack, or just you've used them for so long that like they don't gain experience, but you've used them for so long that they're just in your squad already, you might as well level them up. Uh, so you just want to focus on the four units that you have and just want to take them to the end of the map. Uh, I have gotten to the end of the map, uh, and it's very, very difficult to beat. I think it's actually even a little unfair uh, to, to beat. Um, 
the enemy types are just kind of very generic as well. Uh, they got they got pikesmen, they got knights as well. They do have a little bit more variety than you do in that there are some knights that hold shields that are a little bit more resistant to uh, archer attacks. There are some knights that are very fast, very berserk kind of enemies that will just uh, essentially, I guess, monkey claw your soldiers to death. They'll like jump around and are really difficult to deal with. There are giants that do a lot more damage. There are two variants of giants, actually. There is a swordsman giant, which can be taken down very easily with, uh, with archers. And there is a uh, archer giant, which is the worst unit in the game to ever see. Uh, because their arrows can pierce shields, so you can't use your knights to, you know, protect that piece of land. Uh, they have incredible range, so if you're shooting at them with your archers, they're going to shoot back, and uh, you're probably going to lose a couple units there. And the pikesmen are just as are less vulnerable even than the uh, knights because they don't have protection. Uh, so, yeah, when you see a giant archer, that's a bad time. Uh, you just want to really get rid of them really quick. Uh, the final map throws a bunch of giant archers at you, a bunch of giant swordsmen. It's just wave after wave after wave. Uh, I think I was playing it for maybe five minutes last night. Most of these maps are usually about two, three minutes of good action. Uh, this was probably not, probably longer than five minutes actually, probably closer to seven, eight minutes. And uh, I ended up losing uh, at the end of that. This is a little bit more merciful than a usual roguelike in that it was like, do you want to try again? And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? Uh, and the same kind of thing happened, so I was like, no thanks. But um, yeah, Bad North is pretty okay. Uh, it's it's nothing super special. It's something I like to come back to from time to time just because it's a very easy to chill out to game. Uh, never super complex. Never... Uh, there's no, like, synergies or anything, like Binding of Isaac or Enter the Gungeon, so it's not too hard to learn. Uh, it's, it's, it's decent. There are things that I would have liked better, but, you know, it's pretty okay. It's funny how your description of it being a mobile title first just makes me think about, like, how... <clears throat> oftentimes, if you'll see a game that comes to mobile first, like, and uh, later it comes to consoles, typically, in my experience, uh, if if both versions have been reviewed a lot, like, the the mobile review scores will be, like, 20 points higher than the console review scores. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I attribute a lot to that of just, like, expectations of complexity uh, yeah. for a console game versus a phone game. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I have absolutely no idea if such is the case for bad north or not but uh yeah so like how like uh if you there aren't persistent upgrades like isaac like how do you uh so you you just get more units over time is that the way it works yeah yeah you just get more units um at the end of each battle you can allocate uh there are houses on each of these islands that you gotta save uh if if you save a house from the invaders, uh, when they're when they come onto the island, they if they do not um, if they're not killed by your units, what they'll try to do 
is they will uh, try to bum rush your uh, houses. They will bomb them uh, with uh, essentially what is Molotov cocktails. Uh, if that house burns, then you cannot use it to heal. Uh, you can heal your units and regain some of the units. Or uh, you can use it uh, essentially as a money point throughout the battles. And that at the end of the battle, every house that's standing, depending on the size of the house, uh, bigger houses wield more coins, smaller houses wield less. However many coins you get, that's the money that you take out of battle. That money can be used to upgrade the skills that you have. Uh, it can be used to uh, upgrade items that you have. There are items like bombs that you can upgrade to make them a little bit more powerful. I, I don't find the items to be super useful. Um, they're, they're very situational. Uh, but they're, most of the units that you get um, are probably going to be benched, honestly. Uh, there is the idea that oh well you have more than one unit you can you or more than four units you can you can go do more islands now uh, before you need to rest uh, but it's like that doesn't matter uh, like if you're using the same four units you're just gonna want to keep using those four units if you if you've leveled up those units to have better stats uh, to have a better attack to have uh, more essentially uh, units to them more people in their squad you're gonna just want to keep using them because they're gonna be successful that's fair by the way I did just look it up and when we're talking about the spectrum of Metacritic reviews the uh, iPhone iPad version got a score of 84% on Metacritic pretty good mm -hmm. Uh, however, the Switch version has a Metacritic score of 72%, and the Xbox One version has a Metacritic of 65%. So. <laughs> I, I do believe... I don't know if it was released on mobile first or not. I assume that it was, but I know it was released on Switch in one of their um, Nintendo Direct Indie uh, presentations. One of those, like, 10-minute, uh, here are a bunch of indie games that are coming out, so... Um, I, I get that, uh, especially for Xbox. Like, uh, I don't know if you've seen gameplay of it at all or have looked at screenshots. It's real minimalistic. Like, they're not kidding when they say minimalistic. Uh, the islands are maybe, I don't know, uh, maybe like a total of three, four colors at most. Like, they're, and they're all gray washed kind of in a way. Like, there's still blues and greens, but they're muted. Uh, Many of the enemies have very similar body types. Uh, your units are essentially just color swaps of enemy units. It's a fun, nice game, but if you're looking for like a gigantic roguelike or a triple-A game, you're not going to find it here in Bad North. That's right. I'm actually looking at here, like, it. this indicates that Bad North may have actually come to consoles first and then later uh, came to, uh, like, a year later came to mobile. Um, which is a uh, which is which is an interesting contrast. Usually, these sorts of games, like it's the other it's way the around, yeah. That yeah, yeah. Actually, actually, yeah. I just I just confirmed it. It's uh, ba basically all of the uh, Windows and console releases came in twenty in twenty eighteen summer, and the uh, mobile release came over a year later in in October twenty nineteen. So. Hmm. Uh, so that so that's interesting, but yeah, I 
I can see like how obviously something like that would be would probably work out okay for touchscreen. Yeah. Um, but I also played a strategy game of a very different sort. <laughs> I've talked about it a lot. Uh, once again, Fire Emblem Radiant Dawn was lighting up my system after... I, I have honestly not been playing it in stealth, really. I, uh, I came back to it, and on a, honestly, I am really convinced that this game just wants to test my patience. <laughs> Firstly, the, the map I have, I came in, there's over 50 enemies most of which move during their turn, which can't be skipped, as I've noted, and it's a desert map, and that means sand and reduced mobility for all non-flying units. Uh, Like how so much of modern news has gotten so grim in tone, I've seen people wonder if it's designed for human consumption, and something that honestly made if this if Fire Emblem Radiant Dawn was designed to be fun, honestly, in the end, it's just like well, like it's like no, we have expectations and complexity, and we're going to execute on that. Gosh darn it! So that is what the game the game has, and I mean complexity without there's there's really no real joy in uh, figuring it out, frankly. Now, I will say I uh, have been li- uh, consulting a guide for parts of it, and when it came to the fourth chapter, the guide basically said, you know, yeah, the Silver Army, make sure that they have plenty of flying units. I was like, okay, sure, I can do that. So fortunately for me, like, that meant that I had, I, like, I would say about uh, there, there are like six flying units I, I have in there, as along with two mages, and mages are not negatively affected by, by sand when it comes to their mobility. Mm-hmm. So, so fortunately, most of my army didn't have too much of a problem getting around. Uh, but it was still a pain, especially approaching the boss of the map, who had a long-range magic attack. Uh, and... My regular units, it's not like they were hyper-vulnerable to it, but uh, there is my uh, the Heron character who she can basically have an ability that, that gives another uh, an adjacent character a second turn if she uses it. Like There have been characters like that in the past, like dancers, bards, things like that. Um, but like her stats are pretty terrible otherwise. So uh, I had to redo a whole turn when I uh, discovered that like that long range attacker was just like nope gonna, gonna attack her so it's just like well well that's great. Uh, so so the other nature of the game is like I th- uh, I moved up uh, one of the beast lords who like I thought he was gonna be okay even though because of the nature of his ability like he'll shift back and forth between. The, uh, his lion form and his much more vulnerable human form. I was like, he, he's got like over 70 hit points. He should be fine. And uh, and unfortunately, a true blade with a steel sword, so like a minuscule 
critical hit chance came up and critted him and he was killed uh <laughs> that's so bad and, and i was just like well okay great like redoing that turn again i guess uh because again like in this like you can lose units but you never want to lose units especially since like it just takes out pieces of the story Mm-hmm. So, but, yeah. Uh, and there is there is a decent amount of RNG when it comes to units. And yeah, like, particularly when it comes to critical hits. It would have been one thing if that enemy had been using a sword that, like, like a killing edge that gave it a lot of, uh, like, a higher crit chance. But it was just a regular steel sword, and he still critted off of it. I was not amused. Um but th- thankfully, like, I eventually managed to roll through it and eventually get all of the units down. I'm starting to really wonder if the designers of this game had something against Pegasus Knights. Uh, because Pegasus Knights, which are usually pretty good units in Fire Emblem games, uh, are actually pretty bad in this game. Uh. Uh, yeah, like, they're, they still work well in their role of, like, uh, they have high resistance, so, like... They can mash mages pretty well, but, like, their strength is actually really terrible. Uh, and their speed isn't amazing, so, like, they they don't kill a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, kill in one hit, which is, like, which is kind of what you want off of, off of most, uh, like, melee units. So, um, I have a, a, few of the, a few of them in the Silver Army. I forget, are you able to make Pegasus Knights uh, archers, or is that, like, a no-no? No, there's no switching of classes in this game. Oh, yeah, I uh, forgot. This is an old Fire Emblem game. <laughs> yeah, this is this game is really, really old. You're you're <laughs> thinking like uh, you're thinking like Awakening and Post when you could actually have some control over your character and your build and whatnot. Like and ma- like the character the characters are completely immutable. Uh, there are promoted classes, but it's basically just reached level 20 and that character will will promote uh it's it's astonishing how backwards i everything i hear about uh uh radiant dawn is <laughs> it's it is it is like it's it is the legacy of all the things that have been like from the nine previous fire emblem games and built up to this it was just kind of like cruft that had been building up on fire and laughter that and then it it took them actually shaking some of them then that often awakening uh to actually reinvigorate the series and give it a breath of life again um but anyways i got past that map so like okay long story sequence get through all that get to the next map it's just like okay and thankfully you can actually see the map and go back to base and make more preparations so like seeing what you're dealing with will not preclude you from going back to the base and deciding certain things about your configuration or buying items and whatnot. But, like, I went out to the next map, I saw it, and it's just like, okay, what are we dealing with? And I saw in this map, I was just like, oh, God, like, it's it's another map. It's, uh, like, the enemy, again, like, has, like, over 50 units. I saw in the guide, like, there's nearly as many reinforcements that'll come in i was like uh, uh like i'm i'm not dealing with any more of this right now 
Oh, and that's the era before you can, like, put your system on sleep mode and stuff like that. Yeah, no, the, the Wii doesn't do anything like that. Uh, that's why... Like, actually, the save file for, like, the amount of time I have in the game is ridiculously long, but that's just because, like, there are long periods of just me having it be on for a while and not doing anything in it. Uh, because, like, I, I don't want to have, like... I don't want to have to go through the process of turning the Wii back on, buttoning through the the Wii menu because there's no autoplay on the Wii, uh, and then and then loading th- through the game, buttoning through some stuff, making the save, like loading the save, so on and so forth. Like I just I've, I've just left it on. So and yes, there there is no suspend mode. So. Uh, oh, that's that's rough. That is rough. Yeah. So, but I'm, I'm full sun cost fallacy. I'm gonna get through it somehow. Like it's, but it's just it. It is a. It's just a struggle sometimes. Uh, so, uh, putting aside me wondering why we're still here just to suffer. Uh, Tuesday. What else has been lighting up your system this week? Yes, the other game that I have been playing is Serious Sam Tormental. Uh, it is a uh, roguelike that I actually mentioned briefly uh, when I got my Steam Deck. It is an isometric uh, sort of dungeon crawler kind of thing. Uh, it is a action shooter roguelike, and it's okay. Uh, I don't really love it. <laughs> um, Part of it is that I don't have a whole lot of experience with Serious Sam, so I'm not like, like, I'm not sure that I'm get if there are references that I'm missing or anything like that. But I also don't think it's super amazing, uh, in that like each of the floors are very short. Uh, it, like, it is a very similar to Enter the Gungeon, in that uh, you have your movement. Uh, obviously, you're uh, moving the character. You are shooting. Uh, it does fortunately. Uh, auto shoot to where you are aiming, uh, which I do have comments to make about the aiming, but I'll get to those. Um, your standard gun has unlimited ammo. Uh, each character has a special ability, which is unique to uh, this game, uh, and you also have a movement ability, a dodge roll. Um, there are three characters that I played as. There is Sam, there is a robot, and there is a bomb. Um, Sam is kind of your bread and butter standard, uh, you know, protagonist. Uh, He shoots guns, he rolls, he has a jump, that's his special ability, which is not as useful as the other two characters that I played as, but it does give you a little bit more um, kind of flexibility in avoiding enemy bullets. Uh, That's kind of the thing that this game doesn't do super well, is that in Enter the Gungeon, I'm going to be comparing it to Gungeon a lot just because they are very similar to each other. Um, in Under the Gungeon, your dodge roll is iframes until the second you hit the ground. In this game, I have tried to roll through bullets and uh, I get hurt. Um, it's really more of a uh, getaway roll than it is a defensive roll, and I kind of think it suffers for that in that and maybe I have played way too much Enter the Gungeon. Spoiler alert, I have. Um, but like, it's it doesn't feel good, like, trying to evade to get closer to an enemy and then taking the damage anyway. Um, 
because it, it doesn't it doesn't make sense to me honestly <laughs> that like in a game where your goal is to kill as many enemies that are in the room when you have to keep running away from them that extends the uh, amount of time between uh, room A to room B to room C to get a new item to get more uh, ammunition so that is not particularly great um, the uh, other character that I have played as the robot uh, is also kind of okay. They they have a better ability than Sam in that uh, where your cursor is, uh, when you push the ability button, they will drop a magnet, essentially, that pulls in enemies and pulls in bullets. Uh, that can be pretty useful, except for the fact that it uh, is popped where your cursor is. So uh, what I had been doing is I had been aiming to where enemies are, dropping it, and then shooting it, the problem is, is that the standard gun for the robot doesn't have great range. Uh, so I would be sucking enemies up, but my bullets would only hit about halfway point before they would uh, fade off the screen. So I kind of had to stop aiming, pop the special, and then start aiming again so that I could actually shoot the enemies. That's finicky. Um, it's really okay if you have a weapon uh, in this game. There are serious weapons that do consume ammunition. Uh, they are called serious weapons. Uh, hardy har har. Um, they're pretty okay. Uh, there is a crossbow that I particularly like. Uh, it's like a shotgun crossbow combo uh, that shoots multiple arrows uh, that stick to the wall if they don't hit an enemy that you can pick up and retrieve and keep getting ammo for, so that's very useful. Um, there is a machine gun that feels a little superfluous, uh, considering that all of your characters have essentially a semi-automatic weapon uh, as their default weapon. Uh, there is a shotgun that I have forgotten is even useful. Um, there's a freeze ray that actually does apply freeze to enemies. That is a unique effect. Um, but largely, uh, you're going to be using your uh, sta standard weapon. There's not enough damage in the serious weapons to compensate for it. Uh, the last character that I played at is as is the bomb. The bomb has an interesting effect in that uh, every enemy that you kill will drop a bomb. Bombs are actually things that uh, occur in the game. Uh, they are only activated if you touch them. The bomb has a special ability that uh, they have significantly less health, but their ability uh, button is to detonate bombs in the room. Uh, so that can be incredibly useful in that if you kill an enemy and there are a bunch that are next to it, you can just pop the bomb that will kill them, they'll drop bombs, you can kind of chain reaction it. That is incredibly useful, and I quite like that. The other thing that is very useful about the bomb uh, character is that their shots actually track. Their default shots track to enemies. They fire at a very good rate. Uh, the bullets are tracking, so you're hitting enemies consistently so that you can keep uh, chain reacting the bombs. That is great. I quite like that. Uh, but the massive, massive drop in health. Like, Sam has 300 health points, uh, the robot has 400, and the bomb has 150. Uh, and each hit is taken either 50 or 75 health away from you. So that is, that really kind of puts you in a perilous situation. The only com, I mean, I don't love the game, but the aiming is not particularly great either, in that it's either stick controlled, but it gets kind of like locked in a weird square thing in that like it will jump from corner to invisible corner of a square or it's controlled by the mouse pad but uh, you have to assume that the center of the mouse pad is your character so that takes a little bit of getting used to um, I don't particularly hate it I wish I liked it a little bit more um, it's okay as far as things go I just kinda wish that there was 
uh, better mechanics to it. I will just say, when it comes to the story and character of Serious Sam, it doesn't matter. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> like, it is. It has never mattered. Uh, the game was simply designed to be what it is. Like, Serious Sam was honestly a stand-in, and then I think the publisher was just like, oh, yeah, no, I, th- I think it would work for that. So, like, as much as Duke Nukem is, like, a pastiche of action hero tropes... Mm. Uh, and isn't much of a great character by himself. Uh, like, Serious Sam was like a photocopy of that. So, uh, <laughs> does Sam at least have the, like the the weird quips? Uh, a little bit. Okay. He doesn't do as much pop culture references, but yeah, like he, he like he's about as much of the, that as a character. Uh, also, also less uh, kind of regressive and misogynistic yeah. in certain ways so uh so there there's that upside but um uh what i really want to know is are there men with bombs for hands that are headless that are screaming and running towards you uh not that i have seen there are enemies that are bombs um but i i have not seen bomb hand men running at me <laughs> Well, then this game has done everything wrong, in my opinion. Like that's the, it's one of the quintessential like serious Sam things. It's just like men with bombs for hands that are screaming and and running towards you, and they have no head. Like, what what are we even doing if that's not a basic fodder enemy in this game? That's ridiculous. Uh, it's like one of the few quintessential serious Sam things. Yeah, I. Uh, I haven't played a ton of the series. I've played through all of three, which is not a good game at all. Uh, yeah, and but I mean, it's like it's like sure, yeah. Like I've I get the sense that like a lot of mid tier developers, if they have something, it's kind of like one of those code and chop chop things. Like mm-hmm. just the, you know, hey, like you know, we like roguelikes. Like you know, why don't we do a roguelike in the in the thing what we're what where we own? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like yeah, let's do that. So. Uh, so we have Conan Chop Chop, and we also have Sirius Sam Tormental now. Mm-hmm. Uh, why not? Yeah, uh, the the only problem is that uh, Chop Chop is actually like enjoyable. Like it has interesting systems and stuff. Like this this doesn't feel like it tries to establish itself more than just a pastiche of Gungeon, but bland. And and it's kind of a bummer because it's got like cute little models, oh, like boy. like all of the enemies and and Sam and the characters are like little 3D models. That's a cool idea. Like that makes it stand out, but it's just boring. <laughs> like it doesn't have much of a well, personality. <laughs> well, I would honestly say a decent bit of the series save games have also kind of been that exact same thing. Like uh, I feel like the the series kind of it got traction because the original game came out and it was basically a a complete pastiche to original doom from its shooting style and its speed. And not a lot of games were doing that at the time. So I feel like that gave it a foothold. Mm -hmm. And I feel like more games have come out and done that since then. And they've tried to make serious Sam do other things. And I don't think most of those other things have been that great. So, uh, but I guess I shouldn't be surprised. It's just like, Hey, like, Want to make a Enter the Gungeon clone, like with Serious Sam? Like, sure, why not? There was the difficulty with the characters in that, like, 
uh, Serious Sam is very much has primacy within his own games. Uh, but I mean, I you know, kudos to them that like it, the game is is has more than just Serious Sam in it. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing that I was wondering is like when I'm picking up these characters, I'm like, are these like Serious Sam characters? Like I I couldn't tell. Like everything kind of just feels. I won't say like outside of its own world, but it's like, sure, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the well in the main games, it is all about uh, serious Sam. But looking at this here, yeah, even this uh, oh, the the aesthetics of it are very man. This that is not how I expected this game to look. It looks very CalArt style, mm. uh, like like. Ext- like people sometimes say, uh, they will overuse cartoonish, uh, but like this leg- legitimately is a extremely cartoonish take on Serious Sam. Absolutely. I'll just say I don't recognize the robot. The band, the bomb, just appears to be a variation on the bomb that has always been on Sam's shirt. Uh, so, I don't know. I'm. It's one of those things, like, maybe somebody seriously into serious Sam lore can say, like, oh, no, the, the, you know, how could you forget the robot or whatnot? And I'm just like, yeah, well, it, it, none of it matters, really, bro. Uh, but, uh, so, uh, judge by you, kind of a mid-tier uh, rogue uh, light then. Yeah, yeah, middle of the road. Like, it's, the thing that it does have is that there is times where I'm like, okay, I want to do another run. But, like... Compare that to Gungeon, where I spent months and months of just time being like, I want to do another run. This one, after like maybe two or three, I'm like, I'm going to switch over to something else. That's fair. I'm always looking for my next Gungeon uh, Gungeon fix. <laughs> oh, always rolling around the alleyways like looking like an, looking for the dealer who's like, I got like, you know, I don't feel it like I used to. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it's never as good as your first. <laughs> Need something that's it, that's as good as Isaac and uh, Enter the Gungeon for me. You got that? You got that? And <laughs> I got and serious they, they Sam sell- Tormental. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've got serious Sam Tormental. Well, for me, the other game that's been lighting up my system uh, has been Dishonored Two. Yeah. Uh, now, in this game, it's worth noting you don't want to kill chaos. In fact, chaos results from killing. <laughs> there, there is a mechanic in the game uh, like that is either high chaos or low chaos. And high chaos is basically if you were murdering people uh, and also... For for all of the major antagonists in the game that you end up having to take down, every single one of them has a like either ki- just kill them option or a roundabout option to either lo- like lock them away or you know, cure them or make sure they're not a threat anymore. And the game explicitly says that the low low chaos ending is the better one, which is an implicit recommendation for this option, and basically saying you're the good guy when you do this. Uh, and it also really fits in more with the game's stealth uh, 
uh, overtone. Like the game is is primarily a stealth game. And what this means functionally in gameplay terms is that there's about a third of your abilities and a majority of of, uh, of your equipment which just isn't usable. Oh uh, no! It's like you just yeah, but, like because you're doing a certain route, you can't touch it. That is correct. If you were basically going for a low chaos run, which is what I was doing, uh, like certain things are are almost com- completely without use, like certain abilities. Like there's one ability that's like, okay, if you kill enemies, their bodies turn into ash, uh, which is of course useful for like you know nobody will discover that like NPCs won't discover their their bodies. However, if you're going if you're going in a no kill run, like that ability just isn't useful at all. Uh, like you, you you have access to a pistol and a and a crossbow bolt. Uh, the crossbow bolt in like an enemy run like has a little bit of utility, uh, especially since it's a little quieter. But the gun is obviously a very loud weapon, uh, and and obviously designed to kill. Like I I almost I almost never use the gun to be frank. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like there's two major things. There there is a mine called, called a, sp- a spring ra- razor wi- uh, razor wire mine, which like basically if an enemy steps on it, it like springs out a bunch of razor wire and kills them. Like again, that is something completely useless. Like you know, not not using that un- under any circumstances. Like so. And this was a problem in the first game as well. Like I, and I encountered the exact same problem in this. So they didn't really address that. It's just like, nope. If you're if you're going for low chaos, then there's just certain things you will not be using. Certain abilities that will be less useful or not useful at all. And uh, that really blends into the into the feeling that I couldn't shake. That Dishonored Two was honestly just kind of more Dishonored. Uh, it's about dealing with revenge for a coup against the reascended Emily Caldwin. Uh, Both games have a bit of a floaty, immersive sim control scheme to it, and the AI is honestly pretty simple. Uh, Like, the... uh, All... Uh, AI basically are going around a basic routine, like either standing in place or patrolling. Uh, so, uh, sometimes there'll be like areas of like in, in new. There are certain areas where like, uh, like civilians will like they'll either be uh, neutral to you or like they'll basically say they'll they'll freak out and run away if uh, if you stand too close to them they, they'll call for call for guards and like that's that's kind of it for all of them like the AI feels uh, extremely basic but I and it was this the exact same way in the first game but uh, I feel like they balanced certain things in the game because I think they thought it was too simple in the first game. Firstly, there's an ability called Dark Vision, which uh, everybody should take when they're getting the mystical powers in the game, because it basically lets you see vision cones for enemies. Oh, that's incredibly useful. Yeah, like, obviously in the stealth game, you want that. However, in the original game, like, the range was pretty pretty far. For, for those vision codes. In this, 
like the range is pretty limited. I'm gonna say like about fifteen twenty feet uh, in a circle around you. So like you uh, and it kind of goes out in a pulse. Like it's not a like a detective vision where it's always happening. It's it's more like a radar post. It'll go out and you'll see everything within that pulse. Uh, that and it lasts for about like five pulses over like I don't know. Let's let's say about twelve seconds. Also, enemies are uh, far, like, they will recognize Emily far faster. It's worth noting, like, there are two choices. You can actually play as Corvo, who was the protagonist of the first game, or Emily Caldwin, who's the Empress. I chose Emily uh, because that just seemed to fit the story better. Like, it's about her, like, losing the throne and reascending to it. Like, it it didn't seem as interesting to just have Corvo do it again. Despite the fact that they got the actor who played Garrett from the original Thief games to play as Corvo, which should, which should tell you like where exactly the developers' mindsets were in as far as like what they were inspired by, <laughs> that they got the original uh, uh, Thief voice actor in, into this. But like, anyways, like so I played as Emily. Uh, they have slightly different power sets. Um, Is it the same set of missions or? It is a different set of missions. Okay. Uh, it is ju- it is just structured very similarly. Gotcha. Like, uh, and th- and that Dishonored also had missions where, in like your ultimate antagonist, you could either kill or like basically make it so that you will never see them again. Uh, like, uh, but but they are not killed. So, um, the game like also, uh, I mean. If you remember, like, the structure of all, like, uh, Bioshock games, like, actually, like, post one, like, where it'd be like, hey, like, weapon, uh, weapon one, uh, weapon right hand, abilities left hand, Mm -hmm. uh, like, L2, R2, it's kind of structured that same way. Like, Bioshock was definitely a huge inspiration for certain elements of this game's control. Uh, uh, And, I mean, like, to that regard, like, I will say... Uh, the game itself feels like uh, feels a bit like a PS3 game. The original game was was a PS3 game that came out in 2012. Uh, it, it's really hard to put my exact finger on, but like it just kind of feels old gen in a way, especially in that like it knows what kind of games it is. In that like when you pause the menu, there is like you can immediately uh, like R2. If you hold that down, that's quick, quick save. L2 is quick load. It knows that the player is going to be doing that a lot. Assuming you're you're not just going to be okay with messing up and killing a lot of people, uh, and in direct combat, like there are a decent number of options of things to do, but like it's like a lot of old stealth games when like whenever I uh, aggroed enemies, most of the time it felt like I was making a huge mistake, uh, and if there are like more enemies than one that you were dealing with at any one one given time, your chances of survival drastically go down, uh, because like sim- like it is a first person ac- like action game, and like and you can block and whatnot, but like it's re- it's just really difficult to like bu- block and react to uh, like more than one one enemy, like just given the controls at any one given time, so. The way I see it, like, if I attracted the attention... Well, most of the time I was loading anyway, since, like, I wanted to sneak up and 
uh, knock people out in stealth anyway. So mm-hmm. wasn't uh, wasn't Thief very similar to that? Like had the save and or quick save and load like on specific menu buttons. I'm not sure about that, but it was definitely designed in a in a similar fashion in that like you definitely didn't want to get right. seen at all. Though, I I will say you do a decent amount of thieving in this game as well. <laughs> like even though it, even though it could be just titled Assassin, uh, but yeah, the two big gameplay inspirations worth noting. Like, and the game absolutely wears it on its sleeves. Like the first one is Thief. Like it is very much a thief pastiche in number number ways, uh, including like this the setup of like there's paganish magic in a kind of uh, British uh, steampunkish world. Uh, the aesthetics are slightly different though, but uh, and the other one is Bioshock, uh, mm-hmm. frankly, uh, and the, and that's a that's a bit more subtle. But I definitely had that on the mind with like us. Uh, us talking about uh, talk about Bioshock this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my my question to you is: I quite like Bioshock. I'm a sane person. Uh, one of those statements can be argued. Um, should <laughs> should I play Dishonored? <laughs> uh, do you want to play a first person stealth game? I should ask. You've instantly killed my excitement. <laughs> <laughs> well then, then no. I would I would say you probably don't want to play Dishonored. Uh, like the uh, and other elements it has, like it definitely has a number of pastiche turn of the century characters. Mm-hmm. Like there is like a clockwork Tesla basically and a female Jekyll and Hyde that are in there. Uh, there's a, and Emily Colden herself like feels like a pseudo stand-in for uh, for Queen Victoria in a way. I do like the element where it's kind of implied that that Emily, like since ascending to the throne about uh, ten years ago, has been kind of bored and disinterested in rule. And some people, like some people in the game, like either imply or directly say to your face, like, "Hey, you haven't really been a great empress." <laughs> uh, That's super so, good. So you, so you getting deposed, like some people weren't sad now. It's worth noting that like the person who who takes Emily's place is is a really like she's really bad news and nobody wants her to stay after she ascends. But that's a that's neither here nor there. Uh, I do have to wonder with like the fact that Corvo was available uh, just for, right from the start. I have to wonder if Arcane was honestly worried that people wouldn't want to play a game where you could only play as a woman. Uh, I, I really have to wonder that. I'm, I'm willing to bet uh, that's uh, not out of the realm of possibility. When you said that, that was where my mind drifted to. Like, because like, Corvo has, like, a recognizable mask. Like, you don't see it in gameplay. But also, mm-hmm. Corvo's a dude. And there are a lot of yeah. gamers that are dudes. Yeah. It, I, I have to think that was maybe a worry. Because, like, I mean, again... Like in having and having Corvo just be a default character, it does add a lot of like a lot of extra development work that they had to do, like including like lines of dialogue they have. It's worth noting in the first game, Corvo does not speak, uh, but but in this yes. game, both both Emily Emily and Corvo do speak. Uh, okay. So you do get that, and I, it did kind of pay me like once I heard Carvo's voice, I was just like, man, he he sounds awesome. But I, but I'm going with Emily, though the like, uh, 
the actress who, pl- who plays Emily does a does a perfectly perfectly good job with her, and I still I stick with that decision mainly because like it's it just makes more interesting narrative sense to have this be Emily's story as opposed to Corvo running back this basically the story of the first game over again. Right. Uh, uh, was there wasn't a I know that uh, Dishonored Two is the last game at in the franchise at the moment. Did they want to make a third game, or did this game just, like, bomb? There actually was a third game, and that was Death of the Outsider. Uh, that I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure was des- was originally designed to be, like, DLC for Dishonored 2, but, but they just decided to make it into a standalone game. Uh, but it, it, is, it is based on the building blocks of Dishonored 2. That much I know. Uh, hmm. So, I and I think the main reason why we haven't seen anything more in the five years after that is just because I think it kind of wraps up the story they were telling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and they've kind of admitted as much that like they're not necessarily done with the series, but like it's just sleeping right now. They and they and any story that happens in this Dishonored universe would would like no no longer focus on like these specific characters anymore. So. I, I appreciate that forwardness. Like I, I like that because uh, there are franchises that are very drawn out with very tired heroes. Uh, I didn't, I didn't play enough to talk about it, but I feel like at one point God of War kind of got there before we saw the reboot with Dad of War. Um, like <laughs> at, I like that they're like, okay, Corvo's story is done, done. <laughs> yeah. Corvo's story is done. Emily's story is done. It's there is definitely an uh, era finality to it. Like I would even say, like there was a a slight strain to the story a little bit to get even this sequel made. Like it's it's not like it's not terrible or anything like that. But like they had to they had to twist some things. And like the primary antagonist of this was actually one of the antagonists of the uh, the DLC of the first Dishonored. So like to it. To get it to get it all to work, like there's a little bit of strain, but it, it's fine. It's mm-hmm. fine. It works out. Uh, was that antagonist like set up as to be the next antagonist of the game, or was it just like surprise? It's this person again. Um, they they come back in a different way. So okay. I would say they they had to they had to come with come up with a story reason uh, to do it. Like I, I I have a strong sense that like they came up with the places that they wanted you to go in the game and then kind of devise a story around it. Um, now, including one of those places to go is the Clockwork Mansion, which is a location where, like, you can throw switches and, like, uh, like walls will come down, like, furniture will, will enter from walls, uh, things like that. Like it's a very complex thing. Like that basically means that like all parts of the mansion have two configurations, uh, and it's very complex. I remember after I played it, I made a note that this level feels like the reason why this game was made. Like they like somebody really wanted to make the Clockwork Mansion, so they did. Uh, and it is cool, but it is also like very complex to like try and manage and get around because like. Uh, most levels in most games are fairly static, uh, and the Clockwork Mansion is not. Uh, and you have to deal with the fact that like different rooms will shift, and like and that will 
change how you enter and exit them relative to that. The Clockwork Mansion also has the Clockwork Soldiers in it, which is a... uh, Which is, again, like another one of those things that feels like this is the reason why they're made. And those are basically automatons that have four-bladed arms uh, and kind of a crow skeleton uh, head on them. They can actually, like, they have a vision vision cone for for looking both ways. They're fairly durable. And that honestly, like, really threw me off when they came up. Since, like, up until that point, most, like, basically all the enemies I had encountered I could deal with in almost the exact same way. But uh, I couldn't deal with the Clockwork Soldiers in the in the same way, since they can see both, uh, ahead, they can see both ahead and behind. Uh, and I will just say, like to anybody playing the game, like stun mines are your friend. Uh, they, like uh, two blasts from a stun mine and a Clockwork Soldier is destroyed. It's worth noting that you can destroy Clockwork Soldiers, and it doesn't, and that doesn't count as a kill. Same same goes with like any non-humans. Like kills are basically for humans. Uh, it doesn't matter if you kill the annoying blood flies, rats, uh, the the wolf the wolfhounds, the mystical wolfhounds, whatever. Those don't count. Uh, so each of the different missions are in uh, fairly large but self-contained areas, uh, and there's and there's usually a couple ways to progress with uh, very specific goals and often a couple of cycles. Uh, I found it was often best to approach these areas by going after Ruth and Charms, which you can see using a special item called uh, called the Heart, uh, and they, uh, which will r- reveal their location and their distance from you. Uh, that will basically take you to every place important, and also usually uh, you'll get... A, a different blueprints that will often be next to those, and those are good ways to upgrade your equipment. By the way, I will note, like, for some of the best upgrades, like, there was an upgrade that's, like, you know, like, you you move more silently. I was like, you know, hey, this is great. Uh, guess what? Guess when I, I got that? I got that on, like, the, the final mission. That is incredibly uh, useless. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, great. I, it would have been nice to have this a little sooner, but, oh, well. Uh, Dishonored 2 has a play it your way approach, which is which it is very explicit about, even in its tutorial messages. Uh, well, well, it does allow for multiple approaches. It does mean that certain abilities can never be too good. There is an ability to turn into a rat to move it through small spaces, but it's never mandatory, even for bonus areas. There's always like a way in. Like there's either a key you can get, or like a window that's open that you can. Uh, teleport to uh, it's it might be slightly more roundabout but like yeah it's uh, it is never needed uh, it's also worth noting as far as like neat locations there's one that you can where you can go to and move from the past to the present uh, and a- and action and actions in the past can change the future uh, it's a neat little gimmick, though all of your other powers are disabled, uh, probably to prevent the player from breaking certain puzzles that are in the game, uh, or in that area, I should say. Like it, it's like the the void is being disrupted in that one mansion, so that's the reason why you ostensibly can't use your powers. But like, yeah, there was there's a lot of basically 
Um, like you see a, see a guard, you go into the you go into the past, uh, you run behind the guard, and whoop, you uh, I uh, I I appear, and then and then and then I knock him out. Uh, it's a it's very effective that way. Yeah. The, as I noted, like the aiming and movement is a little bit twitchy. Like it, it expects the player to have like maybe perfect mouse, uh, mouse aim. I was playing it on a controller. Uh, it doesn't make the game unplayable or anything, but it does make interacting with items uh, and occasional precise movements harder. You, have you ever gotten that with a game where it, where it felt like uh, it's it, it's like it wants you to be real super precise, but it doesn't feel like you can quite manage it to the degree that the game wants. Oh yeah, that's that's always real frustrating. Yeah, there are, there are also certain small whalebone charms that you can use to get small bonuses. It's possible with some investment of runes to stack four abilities, uh, and by far the best is Swiss Shadow, which is where you move fa- faster while crouch- crouching, which is the stealth mode. With four of those, you actually move faster in stealth than your regular walk speed. Uh, it's hilarious to stack that, that with Undertaker, where you move faster while carrying a body, and Swift Stalker, where you move faster with your weapon sheathed. It makes moving crouched with a, bo- a body faster than running. Uh, and yes, like it, this is the sort of stealth game where, in like, when you knock out enemies, you want to put them in a discreet location because uh, because bodies of any sort, whether they're uh, knocked out or dead, will attract attention. So, and that's another one of those things that feels kind of old stealth. And it's just like, okay, like you know, after after you take care of an area, it's time to time to clean up things, time to put all the bodies in a discrete discrete area, pile pile them up over here. I also want to note that four strong arms, which is a uh, where you choke enemies into unconsciousness faster, is a awesome ability. It speeds up the process from taking between three and four seconds to less than a second to to knock an enemy out. Uh, I was very very keen when I got that. You know, so uh, overall, like, I mean, it's not a poorly made game or anything, but it did it did feel just a a little bit old fashioned in some ways. And I, I, it is another case where like I wish I liked it a little bit more. But I realized after I played it that like you know what like this is this is about my opinion of the first Dishonored, honestly. Uh, now, after playing a modern game, I'll usually look up the actors to see if there are any names that I recognize. Uh, particularly in this case, I felt like Megan Foster, who captains the boat that serves as Emily's central hub for the game, was something that I recognized. Turns out, it's Rosario Dawson. Uh, wow, that's astonishing. She, yeah, and she's a big part of the follow-up game, Death of the Outsider. Uh there's also a secondary criminal character called Paulo, and he's voiced by Pedro Pascal. Uh, and this came after his star turn in Game of Thrones, but before his mega role in The Mandalorian. Uh, otherwise, there's a lot of veteran journeyman actors in the game. And while none of them are bad, uh, the line constru- construction and direction often felt a little bit flat. Uh, the first game was kind of like this too, and I'm not sure if it's an artistic choice or if it's just the like the developers didn't put enough uh, refi- refinement in that element of the acting. I don't know. Uh, so yeah, that was uh, that was Dishonored too. Uh, 
overall did you like it or it it seems okay <laughs> yeah over overall it was a fine game it's just Again, I feel like it's just to me and the nature of those sorts of more old-fashioned stealth games, wherein, like, uh, again, partic- particularly in that you, you never you never actually want to be seen most of the time. Fortunately, there is a way that after you're seen, like, uh, and an enemy is attacking you, you can actually uh, parry their attacks, and then uh, and then that stuns them, and you can go into choking them out. So, like, if you're seen by one enemy, that's not the end of the world, and you can still possibly proceed. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and I will add, may probably the coolest and most useful ability besides the uh, the uh, the teleport ability uh, and the dark vision ability, which is uh, the teleport ability you get automatically once you get the powers. And the dark vision ability everybody should get, like, is a, is an ability called Domino, uh, wherein like uh, up to four enemies, depending on how much you've powered it up, can basically be linked together, and something that happens to uh, to one of those enemies happens to all. So it's just cool to have moments wherein like, okay, like there's four enemies, I'll link them all together, I will drop, knock out this one guy, and everybody else just kind of falls over. Uh, they, that was by far the most handy ability in the game, uh, but you know, I mean, it's like I said, I I write I, I rate it waiting for a guard to turn their back so you can knock them out and uh, and take their body body elsewhere out of ten. <laughs> uh, so basically, uh, Metal Gear Solid Two. A little bit in a way. Uh, I mean, again. I went for the no-kill route. Uh, it would certainly be an easier and probably faster game if you were, had no compunctions against killing enemies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but, but like again, like the the game, the game, uh, I was almost taking a scolding perspective. Like if if you did that, so I was just like, okay, I'll I'll be a good person. I'll I'll be a good good future empress. Uh, I won't I won't kill my subjects mercilessly. Uh, Weakness. <laughs> so, switching from that to honestly, a thing reflecting to the uh, biggest story of this year and the past several years. Like, I mean, it's kind of a bigger thing, like Microsoft acquiring Activision, just Activision in general, but like Activision as a pastiche, we're going to be handling in two parts. The next part we'll be handling with a bit, but for this, I want to talk a little bit about the comments that Microsoft uh, provided to uh, Brazil's Administrative Council for Economic Defense, which is basically their uh, FTC, and it was made public, uh, like with uh, so when when Sony like raised some. Uh, notable objections to the uh, potential anti-competitive nature to it, and uh, Microsoft issued their responses, and uh, and one of the uh, there's a few things to break down from this. Like, firstly, uh, Microsoft said that Sony paid for exclusives to keep uh, games off of Game Pass, and this is at the core of their uh, business strategy. And that 
Sony basically wants to preserve their their own business when it comes to selling digital games. Like that that much is true. But I will just say like addressing the subject of uh, paying for exclusives, like that is something uh, every company does uh, and has done for a very long time. Like it's just it's get exclusives for their for, for their console system. Like there's there's nothing new to that. So I and I, I'm going to be paraphrasing a lot of the quotes because unlike Sony statements, like I feel like a lot of Microsoft statements were put in a very uh, consumery facing way, which which felt really weird considering these are legal documents. Mm-hmm. But anyways, I won't be I won't be reading them in their words. I'll be I'll be paraphrasing them to put it in uh, to despin them basically. Uh, so yeah, it. Is basically around that and uh, and ga- uh, and Game Pass, uh, and I mean, it is understandable. But like uh, Microsoft portraying uh, paying for exclusives as as anything particularly out of the ordinary, like Microsoft pays for exclusives all the time. Okay, like uh, Sony does it. Uh, Nintendo pays for the, for their own exclusives, like in, in their own way, and it'll be different. But I mean, like. They paid uh, Capcom, I think, like four million dollars, saying, "For God's sakes, make a make a make a Monster Hunter for uh, for our system." Uh, like that, that just happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even then, it wasn't. It didn't remain exclusive. Yeah, it, it it came to PC as well. Like that was part of the uh, that was part of the deal for it. So it was it was just a, a console exclusive exclusivity exclusivity deal. Uh, and that's uh, like also I will say like a more outdated part of this response, basically talking about like li- like Microsoft framed it in terms of uh, uh, keeping things certain uh, like hardware exclusive. Like we're in like I would say the past year and a half, uh, Sony has really started to focus on putting more of their properties out on PC. Like mm. not day and date, but they are still doing that. So like they're. Uh, I would actually say like Sony, Sony is becoming less dependent on hardware as well over time. Like I think, I think that is ultimately Microsoft's goal in the long term. They just want you to pay for an Xbox Game Pass and you can play that anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think Sony just wants to also uh, potentially offer services as well, but in their own different way. Uh, uh, the the uh, the other note that that came from this was basically Microsoft saying that uh, the was basically about Call of Duty becoming exclusive to uh, to Microsoft platforms. Uh, the uh, Microsoft noted that uh, it is uh, it is not it, it would not it would not be profitable uh, to make to make Call of, Call of Duty sing, uh, single platform and that. Uh, and also rebuff the suggestion that quality is not a category of games per se, and that it it faces a, a large amount of competition. Uh, asserting that like only only two two of the two Activision Blizzard titles were uh, were in uh, were in the M- MPD top twenty best selling games in the U.S. last year. They were the, the two best selling games. Uh, in Call of Duty Vanguard and, Call, and Black Ops Cold War, but it's like it's like, hey, that's not the entire industry, right? Mm-hmm. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the thing is that like, sure, 
uh, Call of Duty is not in competition <laughs> is, is in competition with other things but like the the competition is um, meager uh, let's say uh, considering games like uh, Battlefield sell what a, a quarter of what battle of what uh, Call of Duty does yeah it, it is certainly a fraction like it has had difficulty getting traction like even a very strong competitor that I know a lot of people liked in like Titanfall 2 mm. when that came out uh, that that did not attract the critical mass. Like, despite the fact that it was really, really well received uh, for both of it, both its campaign and its multiplayer, like it's uh, it didn't it didn't get to the level of traction that it needed to really compete with a Call of Duty. Yeah. Uh, and I will note, like Microsoft also said, it's not part of their business strategy to remove content from players. I feel like that is a kind of disingenuous point uh, on their regard, since, like, you, yes, like, nothing that they have bought and that has been out on other systems, they haven't taken away anything. However, after they acquired ZeniMax, uh, like, anything that wasn't part of some previously existing deal with Sony has been announced as an Xbox exclusive. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, like... St- like Star Starfield Xbox exclusive, Redfall Xbox exclusive, uh, that uh, Penitence like Xbox exclusive. That's a it's a much smaller game, but like you you get the example. So mm-hmm. like you know no like they haven't taken anything away. They haven't taken that extraordinary measure. Though I, you probably remember when they announced um, for 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 Doom Eternal, like they announced they were doing DLC, and there was a thought that they they might not actually put that out out on the other platforms. Uh, like there there was the threat of that, uh, and then they they eventually said like, no, no, we we will release that on other platforms. But do do you do you remember that that happening? I do, I do, I I remember that uh, because when they announced the DLC, there was initially a season pass, and then when that uh, combination happened. The season pass was gone, uh, which is a, <laughs> it's a weird thing. Um, it's mostly weird because it ended up just being the one season, the two DLC episodes, but it's also like, what's happening? <laughs> yeah, that, that was, I, I feel like initially worrisome to a lot of people for understandable reasons. Uh, be like, you know, Hey, I, I bought this version of doom eternal. Am I not going to be able to get all of the game? Um, mm-hmm. uh, and eventually they did, but like if they're, I'm willing to bet that like any future Doom games are going to be coming to Xbox only. Yeah, uh, if I had to guess. So, uh, and uh, but none of those ZeniMax games are on the same level of, of Call of Duty as as we established last week about like how the primacy of that. It's also different, like as compared to other uh, medium, like. Uh, even if somebody like has access to like let's take Disney for example like let's say you you like Star Wars like most people are probably not going to only watch Star Wars content right like twenty four seven like whereas like for a video game like that is repeatable in a multiplayer sense for some people that yes that is all they play uh, so uh, it's why like. You know the primacy of like certain franchises in this industry. I like it's like hey, it's like Call of Duty, Men, FIFA, uh, like probably honestly like uh, like Pokemon and Mario Kart. Like 
I'm thinking in like that high that that highest tier of category, like things that people just continuously play, and those games just sell and sell and sell and sell. Uh, now the uh, the final little thing that came out of this uh, in the uh, coming out of uh, coming out of this Cade filing was in the legal part where they uh, noted that. Uh, uh, the sales for the past generation. They told us more about sales than they have to investors over the past seven years, uh, where they said that the PlayStation 4 sold twice as many units as the Xbox One during the past generation. So uh, that's obviously a very approximate number, but it, but like that gives more of a sense of like where where the sales are at than we than we ever actually got during the Xbox One's lifetime. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because- I did see that. That's a gigantic flex <laughs> yeah they, they, uh, it's also it's it is a it's a weird thing to have come out but like I think they're it, I understand part of it they're trying to say that like hey like so Sony is actually the dominant one here like you know they don't have anything to worry about mm-hmm. uh, but it's it's still a weird thing it it's worth noting that like I don't think that the uh, implicitly it doesn't seem like the the sales difference is quite as high. It's it like I would say for play, for PlayStation this time around the sales might be between twenty five and thirty percent bigger, which is not nearly as tremendous a uh, difference as uh, as like as twice as much. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I mean for. A, lo- a large part of this, again, we're, we're very, again, like the language was very weird and consumer facing about, uh, like, basically Sony not wanting to be disrupted by Game Pass. Like, that was their assertion, that, uh, that the, the Game Pass was, it was disrupting the system that Sony had laid down, and Sony doesn't like that. Uh, and, uh, I mean, and to, to a, certain, a certain degree, the, like, there, uh, there is truth in that, but I, I feel like in this context... It feels uh, slightly disingenuous, but hey, like Microsoft is trying to re- represent their uh, like they obviously want to pick up uh, Activision uh, Blizzard, Blizzard King. Like that would be it would be a huge expansion of their games business. So you know you you got to say something, but like uh, I I felt like in reading all of that, it had to be put in uh, pre- proper context, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's that's the thing is that yeah, sure there's the idea. Well, well, you know, Sony's not in danger. They're the kings and it's they they had the better sales and it's like, yes, but they also didn't just, you know, spend the past couple of years scooping up mid to large tier developers. And now like and now with this, if this completes, Microsoft will have picked up Two of I don't think there's an exact number, but like there aren't that many actual AAA publishers out there. Yeah, uh, and like particularly outside of Japan, like once the, once they come down, like there will be vanishingly few outside of Japan. Uh, and like again, like my my worries about like the just the escalation this this might lead to. And by the way, it's worth noting like when they said that like putting out. Call of Duty on just Xbox would not be profitable. I just want to note that from the perspective that, like, the Xbox project itself has not been profitable for many, many years. So, like, it has been a loss leader for Microsoft because they want a, a toehold in this area, and they've been willing to basically spend a lot of money to to get that. 
Uh, and I feel like like the idea that like oh we wouldn't do that that wouldn't be profitable. I mean I'm like like so much of the Xbox business has been built on being unprofitable to just be competitive. Uh, so like would I think they they would go that extra step with quality like. Why not? Like, what's what's another what's another hundred million for them? Like, with their other balance sheets, considering the amount of money they make from Windows and Office and Azure. So, like, <laughs> I, I feel like that's an that's an incomplete part of the uh, like. Of course, like again, they're they're presenting their own point of view, but like that's an incomplete par- part of like what they are trying to present there. Uh, like, because uh, Xbox to them is. Uh, it is a small part of their business, like when it comes to uh, actual revenue. Uh, though I mean, obviously an important part, but like they still they, they still obviously want to focus on it. But like as far as revenue, it, it is it is not important. Like as compared to Sony, like you know, like like about thirty percent of Sony Corporation's overall revenue is PlayStation. Like it is the crown jewel for Sony. Like uh, they 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 cannot do it without it. Whereas like for Microsoft, they are. Uh, they they are they are doing the extreme flex like in or, in order to like uh, I mean they aren't a, they aren't a Silicon Valley Valley co- uh, company technically because they're in Redmond Washington but like they act like it in a lot of other ways like they want to like finally be able to uh, to exercise like j- just the fact that their means are so much more to like be able to gain dominancy in in this industry I would say like I feel like that's that has always been the plan. Mm. Uh, but uh, putting that aside for the other half of this from uh, from Activision Blizzard Tuesday why don't you tell us how uh, ActiBliz does as it does when it comes to labor negotiations yeah uh, according to video games or gamesindustry.biz Activision wants all Blizzard Albany employees working on Diablo to vote on unionization Uh, they have a national labor relations board held a hearing with legal counsel for Activision Blizzard and Game Workers Alliance Albany last week Activision wants all staff working on Diablo to vote on unionization, but labor lawyer, lawyers say this will dilute voting power of the QA department, and the uh, Labor Relations Board is expected to make a decision on unionization voting poll in the coming weeks. Uh, given our tightly integrated Albany operations, we believe strongly that no employee should be disenfranchised and that creativity, inspiration, and the free exchange of ideas work best. When all non-supervisory employees in Albany working on Diablo get to participate in the vote, not just 20 quality assurance testers identified by the union, uh, as an official statement from uh, Activision Blizzard, uh, which I, I like that statement because it's so so belittling and just stabs right to the <laughs> core of why Activision Blizzard is a terrible company, uh, because you know they're they're here saying. We believe, you know, strongly in in that creativity and inspiration and free exchange. Uh, we, we we believe in that. But these testers, what are they talking about? They they don't know what they're doing. It's such a kick in the face. I mean, that has been their responses to like both of the unions, but both the Raven Q and A staff and to the Blizzard Albany Q and A staff has been like right up until the moment where like they had to they were legally obligated to acknowledge the raven unit but like 
it is clear that they are not going down without a fight without this and i feel like they have recentered their goals for this and have tried to uh change around the conversation since like it's obvious that it didn't work last time so now they're trying to uh make it so that like there's a different like classification of workers Mm -hmm. uh as opposed to like having a bqa it's just like no everybody that works on diablo in blizzard albany should uh should vote on this Mm -hmm. um yeah, it's it's very it's very clear, very targeted at uh, the quality assurance testers. Like because obviously they, that's the thing is that the QA testers are the ones who are fighting the hardest for the for the union because they're the ones who would benefit best from it to to you know kind of create an equal ground. If they're wanting everyone to vote for it, they know they know that the union is not going to survive that. That's it's I. It's transparent. Like I don't know who they're trying to fool. <laughs> like it's, it's it's foolish. Yeah. I, well, it is just about. Uh, I mean, they're representing what they uh, is their platform mm-hmm. clearly, and will continue to be their platform. And uh, yeah, I I don't know what to s- say other than that. Like they're they have been consistent in that I feel like they have retrain their sites like they, they clearly don't want like any more unions to spring up within their company without there being some sort of conflict mm-hmm. like they've made that clear like you know whatever the, it, like they're walking up to the line of whatever legally they can do uh and they are and they are doing all of it like everything uh in and around and behind that line they are they are absolutely doing it and um yeah and it's hard to say, like, how exactly this will end up. Like, of course, like, the the union would like for them to, uh, put to uh, like, to just sign an agreement basically saying that they deal with all these things in in good good faith and we could go forward from there. But that is clearly not the perspective they have. I thought there was another funny quote from that, from that whole article, like how it, uh, it noted that uh, the... The, uh, it was one developer, Riley, noting that uh, like anybody working on the game, like has to be extremely secretive about anything dealing with the game that they're developing on. But like in this whole uh, like release here, they like uh, like Activision Blizzard just discloses details about uh, Diablo Four left and right. Uh, <laughs> uh, what a mess! What a mess! <laughs> yeah, it. It continues to be an ongoing issue, and yeah, we'll we'll see how we'll see how it turns out. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, the uh, the 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 never-ending story that it, that is Activision Blizzard uh, uh, death taxes and Activision Blizzard stories. Uh, the, those are the guarantees. But uh, speaking of an, another ongoing story or company unfortunately not in a uh not quite in a a terrible a sense but certainly in a uh an ever-growing sense uh the embracer group recently released their financials their sales actually doubled year on year and this was driven primarily by the fact that they've bought up a lot of subsidiaries they're expecting 20 and 30 percent organic growth for the rest of the year no small part because they will be uh, 
launching a new Saints Row later this year. That's obviously a big thing for THQ Nordic, and apparently uh, more royalties from Tiny Tina's Wonderlands will kick in since they own Gearbox. But that is a small appetizer for the bigger news of all of this was Embracer announcing that they have embraced um, uh, many, many more companies and entities. Uh, and this includes Middle Earth Enterprises. That is the uh, division of the Saul so- uh Sansa's company, which owns the rights to Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and ha- and has for over f- over fifty years, uh, and this apparently includes the matching rights to other Middle Earth related literary literary works authorized by the Tolkien State and HarperCollins, which have yet to be explored. Uh, they're looking to potentially have a quote IP driven transmedia strategy. For additional movies based on a kind of character such as Gandalf, Aragorn, Gollum, Galadriel, Eowyn, and other characters from the work of works of Tolkien, so on and so forth. Um, uh, the, it's worth noting this this does nothing to interdict the work that is being being done on the Golem game or the upcoming Amazon Prime series Lord of the Rings Rings of Power. So uh, it. It doesn't do anything to interrupt that, but it does. It it does basically mean like, and obviously the original Lord of the Rings movies, like Warner Brothers, uh, like owns aspects of that, uh, and that and this also doesn't change anything about that. Uh, but this does potentially point to a like a different future for future licensing of Lord of the Rings properties. Yeah, yeah, it is very strange that like they snagged that since. And I mean, I do get the transmedia aspect of it, you know, like, if, if you're going to have a presence, make sure that it's big, but that's a franchise that, like, since essentially the end of basically movie tie-in games, hasn't really existed that much in, in the digital sphere. Like, when the Gollum game was announced, I was like, oh yeah, that's right, there used to be Lord of the Rings games. Like that's that's just not a thing that happens that much anymore. No, no, that's true. Like after, uh, I mean, the most recent ones were the two uh, two Middler Shadow games. Yeah, that that's were, right. Uh, put, put, yeah, they were put out by Monolith, and those uh, those were both very good games. So yeah, like, and this makes me wonder if this signals like maybe it'll be a structure where it'll become like Warhammer, and all of a sudden like Lord of the Rings games will be everywhere. Like you can't. Uh, like you, you can't swing a racket without without hitting a Warhammer uh, franchise if you look at look it up on Steam. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I yeah, I guess we'll see. Yeah, it was very uh, difficult to uh, find information out about um, uh, Warhammer Dark Tide and not fall into Vermintide or some other Warhammer stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, the uh, they also announced that they are acquiring Tripwire Interactive, that is the developer of Maneater, uh, and they are acquiring publisher Limited Run Games, uh, who are known for publishing col- uh, collector's editions of 
various different games, which also grants them, I guess, a 40% ownership in super deluxe games in Japan. Uh, so they're, uh, which says they know will be key to accessing one of the strongest markets in the world for physical games. It's like, no, nobody buys physical games at the rate, rate like they do in Japan. Yeah. So, uh, I, I do wonder if that's going to influence what kinds of games that limited run games do, uh, because sometimes they're absolutely out there and wild. Like there was the uh, Bill and Ted two games that they're porting to Switch yeah, yeah. on physical copy alone. Like that's ridiculous. Nobody is asking for those. Uh, <laughs> so now what? Yeah, that's a very good question. Like limited run games has had a very interesting strategy. I've definitely bought a handful of their games, uh, and I've been uh, or, or the, ga the games they uh, published physically, I should say. Like, and I've been pleased with the quality. I will say the timing of them coming out hasn't always been great. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, the, like I will order things, and it'll be like, you know, great, it's coming sometime. I'll be like, okay. Like I, by contrast, like I. Uh, I ordered Amori from Fangamer over the summer, and this website weren't like an awarding, like, you know, after, like, between the certain days, like, you might see a slight delay, and I was like, okay, I ordered, and, and it was immediately, like, the next day, it's, it's like, it's shipping out! I was just like, <laughs> oh, great. This is great. Like, uh, whereas oftentimes for limited run games, you'll put it in, and you'll wait months until you receive any notification about your order. Mm -hmm. Uh, yep, a, a mutual friend of ours uh, finally, a couple weeks ago, got the Castlevania Classic Collection Physical Edition. After, after You're like, kidding me! Yeah, yeah, yeah. After, like, I think a year and a half of waiting for it. Yeah, that's that's why I say that. Like, I remember, because I get their newsletter, mm -hmm. like, so I say, I was, I was like, how long ago was that? Oh my god. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like yeah, so, like... <laughs> A limited run will often feel like it's running. They're running their own Kickstarter sometimes in that way. <laughs> uh, wow, I, I had I had really no idea. That makes me feel less bad about like waiting three months for unpacking. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I maybe maybe this is like to give them more money so that that doesn't happen that often. But that's that's the only thing I can think of. I mean, well, look. Embracer is nothing if not very hands-off, so who knows if this will change anything yeah. about uh, the, the way that uh, Limited Run uh, ha handles what they do, or even what they publish. So, um, Other announcements include uh, acquiring Singstrix, which is a, quote, vocal processing effects technology for karaoke gaming and entertainment company, and a another, another group which... Uh, they, which is unannounced, which says to me it is probably a company in stealth mode, um, which doesn't really fit with uh, everything else they've acquired. But uh, but who knows? Uh, this was all done for about for about five hundred and seventy five million, shall we say? Uh, the Embracer Group CEO uh, Lars Wingford said today Embracer becomes an even better group. I am pleased to welcome an amazing group of entrepreneur-led companies to the Embracer family and to extend our portfolio with some truly remarkable IPs and franchises, including Lord of the Rings. Uh, yeah, it's... The Lord of the Rings thing really uh, really was a knock-me-out-with-the-feather thing. But, like, hey, like, Embracer is clearly will willing to 
to do the do the deal and like as as noted by like the whole IDOS thing, like they were willing to pick up a bunch of massive studios and apparently the Sol uh, Zance company was looking to sell it earlier this year and never would have imagined that uh, this end coming for it though. Um, and maybe also Embracer is maybe is maybe expecting a surge in interest in Lord of the Rings now that that Amazon series is coming out. But uh, though I will say the uh, the response online to that uh, to that Rings of Power and uh, like live action series has been extremely toxic. Uh, so, but who knows where the series will eventually end up. One, one final note as part of this before we move on. Uh, part of their release noted that one of the, gr uh, the group's AAA projects has transi transitioned to another studio within the group. This is done to ensure the quality bar where we needed to be for the title. We are not expecting any material delays for the title based on this transition. This is widely thought to be... Uh, the Knights of the Old Republic remake being moved from Asper Media to Saber uh, Interactive, um, just because nothing and nothing like after the report from Bloomberg, and there's nothing else that would really fit that description that uh, which is under the Embracer uh, uh, family of studios. Mm -hmm. And and they recently did uh, say that it was currently on. Uh, development hiatus, uh, so maybe they're just like, no, we need to do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's clear. Like I, as a, as I know to a friend, like it, if you're not even passing an internal check, like if people are getting fired over an internal check, as was reported, like that, that is a terrible sign. Yeah, like, uh, <laughs> but anyway, since. Uh, since we we can't have any uh, any good good news at all, and no n none of the big three can go uh, can go out unscathed Tuesday. Why don't you uh, give us the bad news when it comes to Nintendo? Yeah, uh, so Nintendo of America uh, contractors are describing sexual harassment and frat house environment. Uh, new report also alleges that women being romantically involved with full time employees are offered more opportunities and access. Uh, former contractors alleged that the Nintendo of America was a discriminatory workplace for female contractors. Uh, Kotaku spoke with 10 people who worked for Nintendo at various points of the past decade who detailed various stories of sexual harassment and gender discrimination at the company. Uh, a lot of NOA red badges, which are full-time employees, had reputations for using the tester pool of associates as a dating pool. If you were approached by a red badge and they appeared to be making moves on you, other women said that you didn't want to dissuade them too hard. Uh, ooh, that's, that's really... This sucks to hear. Um, also, there is this bit. Men who were friends with employees were more likely to become full-time uh, Nintendo of America employees. Uh, Kotaku also added that following its labor report in April, head of Nintendo of America, Doug Bowser, internally acknowledged that the media's allegations about the company's working conditions. He responded to the coverage saying that the firm has a zero tolerance for misconduct. Uh, wow, that uh, that stings. Yeah, yeah, it, it really does. Like it's uh, And it's unfortunate to hear that, like, uh, unfortunately, these sorts of issues still cropping up in the industry. I mean, like over the past 
few years we've had a lot of uh, upheaval at uh, different major companies like like it hit Riot pretty hard. Uh, it it hit uh, Ubisoft pretty pretty hard. It obviously hit Activision pretty hard last year, and uh, and and now like it's it's unfortunate to see that like oh like somehow they uh, N- Nintendo hasn't been managing its own personnel well enough. Like some like this always points to like some sort of internal culture that that isn't being policed well enough if if uh if these accusations are true uh and uh and since it's uh and since like many many people were talked to for this i i'm willing to i'm willing to believe that the uh that that there was that there was truth to these accusations yeah yeah Um, there there are people who and this is the hard thing is that like with with activision blizzard like that's obviously a boys club like that's I'm not going to say it's not a surprise, but, like, hearing everything about that, yeah, it tracks. It checks out. Uh, with, obviously, like, a company is not the the products that it makes, but, you know, like, Nintendo has been known for a more family-friendly, more, you know, um, casual approach. With something like this, it sucks. I, I know that a lot of people don't want to admit that this is real because their childhoods come from Nintendo America, but it's like... Wow, uh, this sucks. <laughs> like it's it's hard to say like other things like that. And I, I am speaking from experience here because I still play my Switch. I played Game Boy Advance, DS, uh, Wii, GameCube, all of that stuff, and it's it is really heartbreaking. Like I mean, that's the thing is that the games industry, and you kind of forget about it, but it is a very big boys club. Like and with with all that kind of unchecked. Uh, kind of just not in place regulation. Bad things are going to happen, and and we're we're seeing that right now. Yeah, I feel like part of the reason it, it happens over and over again is is like as you said, like it's been a it, it has been a very male focused industry uh, for a very long time. Uh, there's part of it, and yeah, like and I just don't think there has been as enough like self policing as there has been like in maybe maybe other industries that. Maybe went through this like I don't know decades ago, uh, and have re- reformed their HR, but uh, it is still hitting different game companies. And unfortunately, like for things like this, uh, like for Nintendo in particular, I can see because like uh, Nintendo is actually one of the few companies uh, that I would say has a lot of appeal to like both both men and women mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways. Like there's a lot of uh, as opposed to the uh, more almost exclusively male focused a lot of the companies have and so like because of that and unfortunately like this works uh, for a lot of ways like in the in the gaming industry for a lot of things is just like you exploit people's uh, passion for what they're working at like the idea just like hey working at nintendo like for uh, a generation of young people who've like uh, grown up with Nintendo products, like you know that that's a dream for them. Like, like w- like working at Disney, for mm-hmm. instance. Like if you're if you grew up lo- loving those products, it, it is it is now a similar sort of thing. Like you know now we have now reached the the level where like Nintendo products have have been around for long enough that like that people have uh, have grown up and reached adulthood in a world that we're like all they have known is Nintendo. Yeah. So, um, so it's, it's easy to think that like, uh, that, yeah, like that's an easy exploitable situation. Like you get up and get up in an entry level and you don't want to, 
uh, rock the rock the boat all that hard. You don't want to do anything that might get you uh, fired from this uh, potentially dream position, or at least like st- the starter position that might become the actual dream position, which would be a uh, a full time position in Nintendo of America, mm-hmm. uh, becoming a red badge. Uh, but uh, the, there there was another small part of the the Nintendo news as as well, uh, I believe. Uh, yes. Like, okay. Yes, uh, they have received their second, uh, Nintendo of America specifically, receives its second labor complaint of the year. Uh, the company faces allegation that it retaliated against an employee who engaged in protected labor activity. Uh, a second labor complaint was filed against Nintendo of America, which alleges that a staffer faced retaliation for activity protected by the National Labor Retaliations Act. Uh, the, as reported by Axios, uh, the case comes months after the platform holder and hiring company at Aston Carter received a similar complaint. The NLRA labor law states, uh, the NLRA protects workplace democracy by providing employees at private sector workplaces the fundamental right to seek better working conditions and designation of representation without fear of retaliation. Uh, so that's uh, pretty unfortunate uh, among allegations. The contact staffers said that they were doing their work full-time as full-timers, but got paid and treated worse. Uh, so, yikes. Uh, I, I know I know that, uh, you know, working full-time is pretty rough, but being paid for part-time work, that does suck. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This has been a, uh, an ongoing issue, and, like, and I know particularly for Nintendo of America, uh, like, I... I don't feel like most people fully appreciate it unless, like, they've worked in the industry in some capacity. But, like, uh, Nintendo is honestly one of the more secretive companies Mm -hmm. in a very secretive industry. Yeah. Uh, So uh, it it also has aspects of uh, an extremely Japanese company. Uh, like I would, I would still say, like even though, like again, like Sony, Sony is obviously like a uh, a company with roots in Japan, but like it is much more of an international company than than Nintendo is. Like in Nintendo, all the major decisions are made out of Kyoto, and Nintendo of America is essentially just the marketing wing of of Nintendo, uh, and uh, and it also reflects a lot, a lot of the the business aspects of of the home base. Like it's, it is also very Japanese in that way. Like very, very, you know, very top down, and also very, very, very secretive. So, uh, and that's also the sort of uh, environment wherein like these sort of ab- abuses can fester if like they're not being being taken care of uh, in a proper fashion. And these reports are saying that that it's not. And uh, and N- Nintendo is also perhaps not fond of the idea that uh, potential for uh, for labor organization might might happen within their company. But that's the reason why we uh, why we have organizations like this that can uh, potentially stand uh, stand in for people who want to uh, organize and like hopefully not get uh, retaliated against for for things that uh, is is in fact their uh, their lawful right to do. Right, right. Like I, I did see that uh, uh, Starbucks apparently fired people for uh, organizing. Uh, at for unionizing, and uh, there there are certain Starbucks that are now being legally required to bring them back on staff because that's retaliatory action, and uh, that is a crime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
yeah, Starbucks is also dealing with their uh, their own fronts when it comes to uh, unionization, and it's definitely more in the air now. And we'll, it'll be interesting to see like how uh, uh, how and if if things change. So shifting from our dystopian uh, reality to a fictional dystopian past. Our topic this week is talking about Bioshock 15 Years of Influence. Bioshock, a game that's absolutely not political. (laughs) If it was made by Ubisoft, it would have been not political. But yeah, so... So, so Bioshock, uh, to give the basic structure of the game, its setting is Rapture, which is an art deco underwater city created by uh, one Andrew Ryan in the mid-20th century, built around the objectivist philosophy of extreme individualism. Ryan, who is himself a stand-in for Anne Rand, hated the oversight, taxes, and morality of, uh, of governments and religions. So, Rapture was designed to be an isolated society away from that, essentially. You, you get all of that in basically the, uh, the the setup at the at the beginning. Whereas it's nineteen sixty, the main the main character Jack crash lands in a plane in the Atlantic close to a lighthouse. Which holds uh, a bathosphere that leads uh, that leads to rapture. In the trip downward, you basically get a small movie that tells about the founding of rapture, why why Andrew Ryan did it to escape the uh, the uh, the prying prying eyes of primarily the United States and the Soviet Union. Uh, when you get down there, the uh, it's it's very much the story and a story and minus res. Uh, something terrible has happened. You come down there and you see a bunch of a bunch of signs and suitcases for people that uh, like, and the signs are all like, uh, you know, let us leave. And suitcases obviously imply people want to leave, but you fi- but you don't find a lot of bodies there. Uh, so it's like, what happened? Uh, it doesn't take long to f- find out that there's really no hu- normal humans anymore in Raptures, just things called splicers looking for go- a gene-altering substance called Adam, which are harvested from modified little girls called little sisters, and protected by diving suit encased big daddies. Uh, Bio Bioshock is a uh, game which I will rarely say, uh, but it has a absolutely perfect opening. In that all of that is conveyed in like maybe twenty minutes, and it's all really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like if uh, if we uh, one of these days, I might want to talk about like uh, like the best openings in video game history, and Bioshock is absolutely one of them. Like within the first twenty minutes, you get the setting, the motivation for Andrew Ryan, you get the aesthetic. Uh, you get uh, you get introduced to the big daddy and the little sister, the splicers, why they're getting them, the main conceit of Adam, uh, all of that. Like, and it's uh, and it's all conveyed 
in the, like in the game engine itself. Like it's, uh, I mean, like obviously the movie you get on the the way down where Adam uh, or Ryan says like you know I I chose the impossible I chose Rapture, uh, and then like when you get out like showing uh, Ryan's own pretension, there's a sign of him holding up a banner that's that says. Uh, no, you know, no, no gods or kings, only men. Uh, so, so, uh, it, so immediately after you get in there, Jack pl- plunges a needle into his arm. Uh, it seemed like a good idea at the time, and he modifies himself with Adam. Uh, and this has two gameplay effects. Firstly, the plasmids that let the player use various magical powers that affect the environment enemies in a magical way, either attacking or causing distraction. You can you can shoot flame, you can shoot ice, you can shoot lightning, you can shoot bees. Uh, the second is tonics, which which grant passive bonuses, making the player stronger, more durable, better attacking machines, or small bonuses to health. And Eve recovery. Eve is basically the magic power of this game. Uh, I would say the latter was really the revolutionary element of the game, granting the ability to choose customizable builds for your character to adapt how they played, whether whether it was ba- uh, based around plasmids, hacking, or melee. There was no experience or levels in the game, so so the only way to get more powerful was to get more Adam from Little Sisters to equip to more plasmids and, to, and tonics at the same time. It's a nice little touch of the story affecting gameplay. You receive more Adam if you kill the Little Sisters rather than saving them. Functionally, though, the game wasn't that difficult, and the penalty for save, is saving the Little Sisters was pretty small. I, I really like that. Uh, that's the thing, is that like there is story consequences to it as well, but like it's it's not so much about the ending you want to get as to how much power you want to wield by the end of the game, and that's that's a better that is a better incentive than an ending in my eyes. Is do you want to be a real jerk but be really strong? Then here's your way. <laughs> yeah, it it does make it like I do think there was a good balance of it, uh, frankly, between power not power like i mean i just talked about it in dishonored how like that is clearly very inspired by bioshock including like the the two morality paths in the game um but like and all of this dishonored games i I felt like you were a little too penalized if you wanted to be good uh like in just kind of a fiddly way in bioshock it it wasn't uh, you're penalized only by but a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, but it it still it still conveyed the message well enough. Like if you harvest the little sisters, you will get more Adam. Uh, but you but you are a monster, and in that harvesting of little little sisters, that reflects another element that influenced games for years afterwards: a moral choice system. I'm not saying the Bioshock was the first to do this. But its popularity ensured it was a key element for the coming generation. Unlike some other moral choice systems, it only really changes the story in the ending. I don't think it's really worth getting into the details of the ending, since I feel like that's honestly one of the weaker parts of the story. But uh, basically, in one ending, you're you're either saintly, and the other, you're just a uh, a uh, you're a complete a complete. A monster, just a world-destroying monster. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Honestly, the character of Jack is probably the least interesting of the Bioshock protagonists, uh, just because he's not super well fleshed out. Um, at least not in uh, his own game. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's... I, I like that there's hints of it, but never outright, uh, Jack is this kind of person. Like, like that's kind of the thing that, um, uh, Infamous did pretty poorly is, well, not poorly. It, it, it did it well enough, but like it changes the character that you play as. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely for Infamous Second Son. And I think like, you know, Hey, like that's another example right there. Would Infamous have had a morality system if Bioshock hadn't? Like, I'm not sure, but like, I'd be willing to bet that maybe influenced it a bit, uh, and and yeah, I, I think I think they did a much better job with Cole than they did with whoever was the hero in Second Son, Delson. Now going back to the systems of the game, Bioshock also helped popularize scavenging the environment for food and drink that would restore health and Eve, money to purchase items from vending machines, and power to the people stations to get weapon upgrades. Again, this wasn't an RPG, but you could give permanent upgrades to your weapons. It didn't involve crafting. It was just a one-time use station you could find. But every weapon could be upgraded twice to do more damage, have a larger clip, have less kickback, etc., etc. Uh, this this makes the weapon feel feel less static and give the player some some control over like whatever their build was. I don't know about you, but I was uh, for me like I. Uh, I probably had a very hack hacking heavy heavy build. I just liked hacking into whatever machine I could I could get my hands on, uh, and uh, I, I remember using the, the the machine gun and shotgun a lot, mainly because you just get a lot of ammo for that. Mm -hmm. Hacking was pretty great. Um, I it was the more memorable uh, build that I have. I remember more from my New Game Plus run is uh, a heavy wrench focus with actually um, <laughs> ice with like a ice power on it so that it would hit and freeze enemy enemies. Um, I remember using the pistol a lot as well, uh, and I think the main plasmid that I used might have been electricity just because those are some of the earlier weapons you get in the game, so you have a little bit more time to build on them. Yeah, definitely. And there's like also builds based just upon using the wrench, yeah. the melee weapon. Like, uh, and usually, like, you know, using it in tandem with uh, a plasma, like you said, the the lightning one, the freezing one. Like, I mean, a cool effect you could have is like, uh, I mean, since this is a decrepit underwater city, there's a lot of like pools of water around. Mm -hmm. Uh, so like that's an opportunity that like if if enemies are staying around in a pool of water and you hit it with lightning, that hits all of them. Uh, and that will obviously do damage and stun them, and then you can like run up and hit them with a wrench. Uh, and there and there's a lot of uh, and there's a lot of tonics which uh, which make using a wrench better, basically. Uh, it's definitely something that later games refined on a little bit more. In that, like you you can't have multiple build like you can't have like. Uh, like plasmid one hand and gun in other hand, uh, as they did later. Uh, it uh, it was a it, it was like it was one thing at a time. So yeah. that made the it it made it made it uh, a a little bit more clumsy by modern terms. But it was it was still a lot of interesting ideas built in there. Um, now uh, the. 
The first person to contact Jack in Rapture is Atlas, who provides some context and directives for Jack for the first two-thirds of the game. This is another touchstone for Bioshock, and I'm not going to pretend it's the only one to do this, but being directed about by radio is a good way to give some natural narrative to the game while also giving direction to the player, especially since Jack himself does not speak. It's a, I would actually say like that, like you mentioned before that Jack doesn't have much of a character. I feel like that was a purposeful design decision. They wanted the the player to be able to feel like they like they were embodying Jack mm-hmm. uh, more, more totally. Uh, and uh, like, and that was I, I would say like also more typical of games of the time, like that there be. Uh, there were more silent protagonists. Like, hey, like, that's another way that, like, Corvo in the first Dishonored, like, I think might have been influenced by Bioshock a little bit since, like, Corvo doesn't speak in that game. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, um, it's, it's fun. It's interesting. Uh, it's, it's kind of funny in a way in that, like, Jack is, obviously he does have a part in the story. He's not completely absent from it. But for the first, like, two-thirds of the game, a lot of it is, um, <laughs> it's kind of funny to say, but sometimes it's running errands for Atlas. Uh, there's benefit to you as well with the idea of getting out of Rapture, um, but a lot of it is Atlas tells you what to do and you go do it. <laughs> yes, yes, there is... It, it feeds back into the narrative of the game in a way that is not immediately obvious, mm-hmm. uh, and and we're and we're going to we're going to get to that. It's a very clever twist. Uh, yeah, and along with those radio chatter, there's like audio logs strewn about the environment for Jack to find. Again, this was something that influenced so many games after this, building up characters without direct dialogue by essentially having spoken journal entry, spoken journal entries. System Shock 2 provided the structure of it before, but Bioshock's acting was of higher quality, and Bioshock in general was much more acclaimed and successful. Um, Depending on who you ask, uh, Bioshock can either be credited or blamed for this trend, since I feel like a lot of games have offloaded too much of their narrative onto audio logs, but it's really hard to imagine the Bioshock uh, experience without having uh, audio logs. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's funny because that's still a thing today uh, with uh, infamous Second Son. Basically, all the communications are not audio logs that are found, but uh, audio logs in your ear from your brother. <laughs> that, that is true, and, and I will say, like, uh, the, you know, hey, dis- designer too. Like, there are there are audio log machines like that you'll find around, like, uh, and uh, and even our. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and even in a, another another game we'll, we, that we are play, uh, playing discreetly right, right now, like uh, audio logs provide a lot of a lot of context in the game. So, mm-hmm. you know, audio logs still very much a thing. And again, like Bi- Bioshock wasn't the first to do it, but I feel like it really popularized it. Uh, now, uh, the storytelling is honestly everywhere in Bioshock, and its environments are a big part of it. Whether it's the awesome bathosphere sequence to start the leaks and derelict nature a much rapture by the time jack gets there to subtler things like the strung out corpse of a smuggler and a box of contraband 
uh, a, uh, which was a bunch of Bibles that he wanted to bring into rapture. Uh, there's also signs marking the new year of 1959 everywhere, uh, and many Spicers are still dressed for that party. As the game takes place in 1960, it stands reason that Rapture has been degrading uh, ever further over the course of the year. Uh, now, the actual story of Bioshock has a lot of themes to it, and the most obvious one being a rejection of any sort of society of elites without any moral th authority like that, that could function long-term at all. But it's, but it's about more than that. Uh, the conflict that has torn apart Rapture has echoes of the with with us or against us narrative in America of the of the Iraq War, and in particular the final th third, there are issues of classism that come up in uh, Rapture, where there was extreme divides between the hyper rich and the working poor. Uh, as noted by one character, like uh, even in a society like like Rapture, somebody has to clean the toilets. Uh. <laughs> yep, exactly. It's it's such a distinct message too, because there is a very distinct idea that it starts out with, and then there's the suggestion that at the end of the day, human nature is pretty hard to beat. Yeah, yeah. I, gaming still struggles to have meaningful stories, but. Bioshock Shock did better than most uh, 15 years ago, I would say. Now, speaking of the structure of the story, the first... Uh, at, at first, Jack looks to escape, but Andrew Ryan cuts that route off. At that point, Ryan himself becomes the target, and you have to tra travel through various areas of Rapture to get to him. There's some interesting false narratives in the game. You have to take out a, surg a surgical doctor, J.S. Stenman, whom it's implied that Ryan's mistress had a fondness for, and an insane artist and musician, Sander Cohen, who had a falling out with Ryan. It sure seems like for a while that Jack was taking out uh, Ryan's remaining enemies, and I and I wondered if I was secretly being manipulating. Uh, the real complete truth wasn't revealed until you finally encounter Riot Ryan himself. And the player is being manipulated, but not by who I thought. Uh, yeah, the climax of the story really comes when you confront Andrew Ryan, who is casually waiting for, 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 for Jack uh, swing, uh, playing golf, and he has already deduced who Jack, Jack is. Uh, based on Ryan's DNA, Jack is a sleeper agent activated on the plane at the start of the game, with the trigger word, would you kindly. Ryan demonstrates this by having Jack sit, stand, and run on command. Jack is completely at Ryan's mercy, but for Ryan, it's over. His dream of rapture was dead. All that was left was to prove, prove a philosophical point. A man chooses... A slave obeys. So, so Ryan hands Jack his golf club and tells him to kill. And uh, and and Jack does so, having uh, having no choice in the matter, as uh, as as Ryan cries cries out over and over again, "A man chooses, a slave obeys." Uh, to me, like this is just a 
like it's the emotional peak of the entire game and it's something that like it could be done really badly but i i've always really loved it because it it just feels like a moment that's so true to the character of of andrew ryan like because his character like also is like working and thinking at the same time that jack is going through uh rapture like and and he and he is and like in realizing who jack is and like also coming fully to terms with with his dream of rapture that like uh it it, it like it's just no more anymore like there's no like there's barely anything that counts as a human anymore in rapture like it's just a derelict city filled with uh uh addicted murderous splicers and uh and not really human little sisters and uh and big da- big daddies like there's uh the original dream of, of rapture is just a is just a corpse uh rotting at the bottom of the sea yeah, it's a it's a very distinct uh, chunk of the game. Uh, it's a great. It is partially also a commentary on on game development and game objectives as well. It's very beautifully artful. I was even thinking about like when <laughs> when you said, "Oh, we're gonna do a episode on Bioshock." This is the exact scene I was thinking of <laughs> mm. because it's so incredibly distinct. Um, it's uh it's the perfect moment because andrew ryan has been throughout the game you 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 hear a couple audio logs about him you read about him you you see the work that he's did this is the only time you see him in game and uh oh man it's it's the perfect scene like there it's a great cutscene. it it utilizes it 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 shows you everything that you've been doing and then it clicks for you and if the player has not put it all together at that point, like Ryan, uh, like helpfully lays it all out. Like, and again, genuine to its character. And that's a good point about like the idea of freedom as a player. Like the questioning, what what have you been doing? Like, you know, do you actually have free will? Uh, like th- that is another good element there. Like I, I love games that manage to really toy with that in a compelling way. Like, uh, you know, is it really your choice to do these things? Uh, and Bioshock asked that question in an extremely co- compelling way. Uh, in a way that, like, I, I mean, like, honestly, like, that's another topic we could do. Like, you know, games that uh, make you make you question the, the nature of player choice. Uh, and, and Bioshock would be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's at this point in the game that Atlas reveals himself to be the con man Frank Fontaine, who basically caused a civil war in Rapture in order to steal his technology and sell it to the outside world. It's not that the rest of the game is terrible at this point, but with the primary de- denouement having already occurred, it feels a bit perfunctory as you as you move against Fontaine, in my opinion. Yeah, it's definitely the weaker par- portion of the game. Um, in fact, there are a lot of people who say that uh, the the Fontaine boss fight is positively terrible and uh, soils a perfect game. <laughs> um, I don't know that I'd say it's all bad. Uh, it's not all great, um, but the definitely the revelation that comes with uh, Andrew Ryan 
it's 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 less of a period um to it's it's less of the period that it needs to be because of the rest of the game it's a comma and an extended run-on sentence <laughs> yeah yeah that's why I, I call it the the emotional climax of the game mm-hmm. because it, like you're confronting the major force behind rapture finally and you're having the major revelations over who you are and what you've been doing and uh, and then there's another third to the game basically mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and it's not like Fontaine is, like isn't a compelling character and you get way more context to, for him after you you leave that part but but still like it it is it is less compelling than the, than the moments that it led up to you confronting Ryan Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, to your point, the the fight against Fontaine, like wherein he uh, he injects himself with a lot of Adam and turns into a living Oscar statue, uh, <laughs> like yeah, yeah. the The most interesting thing about the rest of that portion of the game is the reveal that uh, Fontaine has been playing you, and that happens at the very beginning. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and. Uh, it's it's funny too since like he'll change his voice like you know when he was when he was Atlas like you know At- Atlas is very is very Irish American like with uh, a lot of uh, with complete with the accent and a lot of uh, slang of the mid twentieth century but like w- once he reveals himself as Frank Frank Fontaine he has a uh, like pure New York accent mm. uh, he's a very dirty so. businessman sounding yeah yeah he. Uh, so great, great casting and acting in the game. Um, now, uh, Bioshock itself was a critical and commercial success, selling over two million copies within a year of its launch and having a Metacritic average in the mid '90s, winning ga- Game of the Year from X Play, Game Informer, IGN, BAFTA, and the, and the Spike TV Game Awards. Uh, the cl- the claim was such that I rem- remarked in years af- afterwards, "What will be this year's Bioshock?" When I referred to any consensus favorite for game of the year? Spoilers for this year, it's Elden Ring. <laughs> uh, the influence of Bioshock is uh, on games is extensive, from both narrative design to gameplay elements, to the point where elements are are such embedded tropes at this point. I feel like they're they're maybe used unconsciously. From a personal perspective, I would say Bioshock is one of the greatest stories ever created in the video game medium. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, there is no argument from me on that on that part. Uh, it's I was I was thinking about that as well. Is that like out of all the games I've played, I I have I mostly play games for story. Um, I I love Bioshock for because it does challenge a lot of topics that even now games are struggling to discuss uh back then it was it was full out in front saying hey this this is kind of a story about capitalism being bad uh it it challenged political ideology it challenged the idea it it was one of the more prominent games that had a meta narrative to it um it's just it's a very good way of integrating a lot of things into one thing uh some of the gameplay systems are a little bit dated, um, but I mean that's going to happen with anything in time. You know, is is that as 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 the genre and the media moves on, 
pieces of it will be will grow and adapt. I mean, I remember when uh, there was that magazine that said that Alien Shooter was terrible because you moved with the left stick and controlled the camera with the right stick. You know, <laughs> now that's how shooters are controlled. Uh, this game did not have those complaints, but like, like you said, there are so many things that are just unconsciously aping it now. You know, the 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 audio logs that you find throughout the game, or audio logs that are just throughout the game. There's a whole mission in Second Son that is just finding audio logs from a journalist. Uh, it's it's. It's things that have influenced the gaming industry that some people have just done for so long now that they don't they don't remember where it came from. Yeah, yeah, like that's what happens over uh, fifteen years. Like the game really uh, blew me away when I uh, when I first played it, and uh, and, I, and I won't comment like specifically about the development of Bioshock, but I will say, will say. The development of Bioshock was very troubled. It took about five years, and that was back when games did not take five years to make, mm. usually. Uh, and uh, it went through a lot of iterations, a lot of difficult times, and even with the success the game had, a lot of developers ended up leaving Irrational after it was done because the end part was so difficult. Uh, and, uh, and incidentally, the... Uh, the sequel developed at Irrational Bioshock Infinite, like also had a uh, equally tr- uh, tr- troubled development in so in its own way. Uh, and uh, that game instantly like was was also critically received. But I feel like uh, there there's like in retrospect, there's many more mixed opinions on Bioshock Infinite. But mm-hmm. I'm not going I'm not going to get into it. But I feel like the narrative of uh, the the original Bioshock is still. Uh, seen as fairly fairly unimpeachable, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. They in in the other Bioshocks, they try to kind of do the same twist, but it never hits quite as good as as the original one. Yeah, yeah, like uh, Bioshock Two, which is uh, I mean, which is certainly a very solid game, but like it is, uh, uh, it it also being said in Rapture, kind of. Uh, st- stretches the it stretches the premise a little bit. Like I wouldn't say to the breaking point, but it, but it stretches the it stretches it out to accommodate the story of Bioshock Two, uh, and uh, and and there's also some some fun fun gameplay in, in Bioshock Two. But the the like the overall narrative, there's no there's no real competition. Like uh, the the first the first Bioshocks is is much much better for the story. Uh, do do you have any other uh, any any other th- any thoughts about uh, about Bioshock you want to share? Um, I love it. <laughs> it's 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 a great game. I uh, back in twenty twenty uh, when those three games were re released on Switch, um, I played two and Infinite. Uh, I we have differing opinions on the rest of the series. Um, I think they decrease in quality as they go. You quite like Infinite, but um, the original Bioshock is just. Honestly, it is the strongest first entry in a series ever, um, and this is coming from a person who their favorite game of all time is Silent Hill 1, um, but with Silent Hill 1, it's immediately outclassed by Silent Hill 2. Uh, Bioshock does, it's not a perfect game by any standards, uh, but it says what it wants to say. Uh, the last third of it is a little, a little, a little rough. Uh, but it does have a very good sequence in uh, becoming a big daddy yourself. Um, I love that most of the boss fights in the games 
are very self-determinant. Uh, uh, do you want to fight a big daddy or not? You know, it, it's it's a process of mentally psyching yourself up. That's pretty fun. Um, it does have a nice horror tilt to it as well. Um, it's not a complete horror game the way that uh, a lot of games are, but it doesn't it doesn't shy away from it. It's it's got a lot of really good elements, and uh, I'm I think the gaming world is better for uh, Bioshock existing the way it is. Yeah, I would definitely say like there's some horror influence in it. Like it's not a it is not a horror game. Like anybody who portrayed it as that way, it'd be like no, it it's it's really not. Like it's not it's not even really action horror. It's yeah. just uh, but but you do uh, you you do face off against a lot of like kind of disfigured people mm. uh and th- there's definitely uh like elements of slight a slight body a slight body horror in there but like that's that is a, that is a much more s- subtle utter cur- undercurrent to it it's not like that is the that is the primary theme of the game right uh, uh what i think will be most interesting is uh now now that bioshock has come out and it's had its uh heyday uh there is another one in development but that's not important right now uh, what I'm interested to see is uh, some of Bioshock comes from System Shock. System Shock is being remade. I want to see how much of the System Shock remake comes from Bioshock. <laughs> that's that's a very good question. Like, yeah, what? Uh, and that System Shock remake seems to be at least a little further along than the than the Bioshock remake, of which all we know about is that it's being made. Yeah, uh, and. Considering where the series ended, like I don't know what the heck another Bioshock is, mm. but uh, though it, it is worth noting, like even after the first game, I remember uh, Yahtzee Croshaw really didn't like Bioshock Two, mainly built upon the premise that he thought that the first Bioshock was a uh, complete self-contained story, and you don't need to do another one. Yeah, uh, in a, like in Rapture. And in a way, I can I can appreciate that criticism. It's true. Like like the first the original Bioshock is a complete story, and it was not it was not really designed with the sequel bait uh, at all in mind. Uh, but uh, but but it, but it does ha- it does have them. Like I I, I technically count them as like uh, it's Bioshock Bioshock Two Bioshock Infinite and then B- and Burial Sea. Burial at Sea. Uh, uh, we we do agree on Burial at Sea. The the first Burial at Sea is friggin' amazing. <laughs> Bur- Burial at Sea, is, yeah, they're. Uh, I I like Burial at Sea. The first one is uh, is a is a great experience. Anybody who uh, if if you like Bioshock Shock at all, like you should definitely experience that. But mm-hmm. uh, this this uh, is talking a little bit more about Burial at Sea, but I I do like how uh, the way that uh, Burial at Sea ended and kind of folded the whole trilogy in on itself, and that uh, without saying yeah. too many spoilers, uh, Bioshock right now doesn't need a fourth game. <laughs> no. No, it uh, it it doesn't. It is it is a it is a complete loop at this point. Yeah, like uh, and, and it you is. Don't see it that. is. T- yeah, it it like it is told a complete story. Whatever you think of the later uh, the the later entries, I've it feels pretty concluded to me. 
and I feel like that's part of the difficulty in making an, in making another thing. Like I feel like so the I believe it's Cloud Imperial Games uh, is uh, I believe that's the name of the developer. Anyways, like they're like that's the difficulty in trying to make that. And I think even Ken Levine has felt the pressure in trying to recreate like something as revolutionary as the first Bioshock in what he's been doing for the past ten years, which hasn't been seen publicly. Yeah, because he's just been. Because uh, 2K Games has, has essentially like gave, given him carte blanche with the small team to try and create what he wants to create, which so far has been nothing that we have seen. Uh, and, and I can understand that pressure since, like, yeah, as we, as we both said, uh, the the Bi- Bioshock is a is a seminal series, and the first one is a a, se- a seminal game that that should. Frankly, be, be be played by every gamer and uh, should not be forgotten. Exactly. But that that is that is Bio- Bioshock. Uh, 15, Fifteen years of influence. Thank you all for listening. Our upcoming topics will be uh, be on. Uh, Looking to subjects such as the uh, the games media that has made us uh, wanted to touch on that for a while. Me and Tuesday grew up at different uh, times. We like similar games, but uh, definitely the games media that influenced us was different. It's uh, because of our age differences. So we're just going to be talking about like the things that influenced us most, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, and also talking about the the subject that interests me, like just how poorly that uh, Marvel versus Cap- Capcom Infinite, Infinite, too many infinites, jeez, uh, <laughs> like was what was was in its uh, marketing, since it's probably the worst case of like uh, just consecutive mar- marketing that isn't just something like a magazine ad that says John Romero is going to make you his bitch. Uh, Something which Tuesday has probably uh, heard about, but but maybe never seen. I I know what game you're referencing. It's Daikatana, which I want to yes, play okay. to see how bad it is. <laughs> it's it's pretty it's pretty bad and boring, unfortunately. Oh, like it's not even it's not bad know. fun <laughs> like EDF. <laughs> no, no, sadly not. It's just it's just kind of a longish but like boring game. Like from yeah, it, there it's a it's a mishmash of, of too many ideas. Like it's not even. Uh, I, I, w- I wish I could say it was like playable bad, but it's, it's just like no, it's just kind of bad late late nineties sh- shooter bad. Uh, oh, but. David, I have a great terrible idea. Uh, <laughs> Die Katana is seven dollars on Steam. <laughs> well, like you know, look, you're uh, you're you're technically an adult. You can make decisions on your own. So. Uh, <laughs> Oh uh, well, well, whether or not that that happens, uh, uh, thank you all for listening, and hopefully we will see you all next time. Until then.